0: You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. For more great shows like the one you're about to enjoy, visit electronicmediacollective.com. And now, our feature presentation.
1: Welcome to the nineteen eighties movie graveyard,
0: the show that lets forgotten movies have one last chance to shine. Now, sit back and relax, enjoy the show.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the movie graveyard. Welcome back to the uh, the tying up loose ends uh, summer theme that we have going on here. Trev, I, I know I haven't told you this, but uh, I am trying to go through as much as possible and uh, you know finish up. Um, all the loose end recordings movies that I was supposed to do with certain people, but we never did. Uh Last week I did Poltergeist, which I, I was supposed to do like a year ago. I finally got that in the can. And then uh you and me, we originally did our best films of 1981. Like I couldn't believe this has been like two years already, but at the tail end of that, we said, Oh, you know, there's so many horror movies. We need to do a special just on the horror movies in 1981. So Trev, A.K. Trev3k, welcome back to the movie graveyard to finish up some uh, <laughs> unfinished business here.
2: Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's great to finally get to this, and I, I'm going to make a promise to our, our listeners right now, I promise that I will not pick Superman 2 as one of my favorite uh, 1981 okay, okay. horror films. That's a deep cut for some people who might remember. I picked that as one of my yeah. favorite films of 1980 and 81, because... Uh, you know, yeah. the internet led me awry on which uh, year it actually came out in.
1: So, and the internet may be uh, leading us awry. Yeah, who knows? Too. You never know. You, know? <laughs> you but never, no, you never know what these re- Wikipedia releases. Because I mean, I'm old, Trev, but I'm not old enough. I can't tell you an exact release date from the year that I was turned four. Yeah,
2: no, that's, <laughs> so. I was. Uh, I mean, I was born in eighty, so um, yeah. I certainly got into horror early, but not early enough to be like, yes, I was an infant getting excited about the release of Maniac.
1: So you know. Yeah. You were He was suffering from infant titus at the time. <laughs> you couldn't make it out to the theaters. He was laid up uh pretty much in bed all day long. Every actually day, looking at the with math infantis. on this i was
2: I was uh, still inside my mom's womb when we when maniac came out so um unless my mom is super cool in a way I don't know, I don't think I was in the theater for
1: maniac exactly so basically, just a little bit of what we're gonna do is we are gonna um roll through and we're gonna go. Not weekend by weekend, but weekend. We're going to mention the dates that uh, all these horror movies came out. So we're going to start in January and go all the way to the end of the year. Yeah, it's really it's really hot and heavy. Uh, There's really only like about a two month period where things cooled off even a little bit. Mm-hmm. But um, okay,
2: before, the, before we get in, oh, go ahead. Sorry, you can finish explaining. The...
1: No, I was just saying at the very end. You know, after we run through all these and I uh, give a few uh, comments about them, we'll pick our top three. Horror, not not movies of the year, because we're specifically only on horror. So, if you want to, like, you might even be able to catch us, you know, catch us in a in a in a contradiction if you want to go back and listen to that other show, because like I don't even remember what movies we picked just for the overall movies of eighty one. And
2: you can call it a contradiction, but you can also call it uh, us not preparing, or you can just admit that (laughs) tastes change too, right? Like my my favorite films of any year could change over time, you know. So. Um, but what I wanted to say before we get into like the, the weekends, I think, as a nice just kind of introduction, go. You're very much on record as um, always saying that like the '80s is your favorite, you know, decade of film, and I think in particular for horror, right?
1: Oh yeah, for sure. So for uh, me, uh, I, just... I
2: have a hard time choosing whether I prefer the '70s or the '80s for horror, but they're both really strong. Um, but I was curious, like '81, you know, is like you know, so coming out of the the '70s, which was a pretty revolutionary time for horror, in particular independent horror. Um, and rolling into, you know, first you have 80, and then now the year we're covering today. I'm just curious if you wanted to briefly talk about what is it about 80s horror that you think is so kind of memorable? Because, I mean, I obviously have my own ideas. I can share mine after you go for a little bit. But I think looking over the list of films we're covering this year, it kind of speaks to what I assume you're about to say. But uh, I just thought you might want to tell the listeners, like, why 80s horror?
1: So for me, um, the 1980s just in general for film was kind of that sweet spot where technology... Evolved to the point where a lot of things were possible that weren't possible before, but it hadn't progressed to the point where things were overly easy to do. So a lot of films, like especially like what I'm talking about, is the special effects. To me, that the, the high point pretty much of special effects is mm, probably the mid '80s to the mid '90s before like CGI took over, obviously. And then really, Trev, you know this as well. Um, horror films were not really that well funded. I would say until like the nineties, like most of these films on our list are like I pretty much think everything on this list is a under twenty million dollar budget mm-hmm. um there's a few of big budget anomalies you know, like throughout the eighties for horror, but you know it's just that low budget, and what that low budget in my mind breeds is a lot more focus on um And what I like about horror in general, because I'm not a big, you know, big scares guy, I'm really more the atmosphere, the soundtrack, just the feeling, you know, and and plus, let's be honest, with the older movies, um, there wasn't as much of a fear of, um, you know, the audience having a short attention span, so I just felt like these films, it was such a sweet spot for horror, because even some of the more schlocky ones sometimes, they were willing to like really take their time, slowly build it out, and get you into the atmosphere of what was going on.
2: Yeah, I agree. And I, I think, too, like the 80s, looking at any, just do a list of not even 81, just 80s horror. And you'll see it was really a decade of huge imagination, um, kind of like big concepts. But, I th- you know, big concepts not afraid of their budget. I think nowadays you see people um, create horror ideas that are made to be filmed on a low budget. And in the 80s, you have a lot of filmmakers making ones that were made to be filmed on a high budget, but then making them on a $1 million budget or something and just going for it. I also think the 80s might be the last time where, I mean, even like the the things we're going to look at today, I think symbolizes this, where indie horror and studio horror was kind of on the same level. Um, I think most de- like horror when you split it into decades, it's usually dominated one way or the other. There's certain decades where the studios were actually kind of on top, and there's other decades where you say like, "Wow, indie horror!" Like right now, I think now is a golden era of horror, but primarily for indie stuff. There's a lot of great indie filmmakers making really cool, interesting horror films that are ending up going straight to streaming, going straight to shutter, um, VOD releases. And the studio stuff is, uh, you know, there's some okay studio stuff, but it's kind of all in that Blumhouse kind of model, right? Yeah. The eighties, you have studio horror films that don't feel that much different than the independently produced horror films that are being made at the same time. Everyone's kind of, um, doing the same kind of unique ideas and even like, In this early period of the 80s when there's a lot of slasher ripoffs, it's just so different than today. I think when today a genre gets hot and people start creating carbon copies of it, they're usually not very good or interesting. But there's just something about the slasher cycle where even the worst ones are entertaining to a certain degree. Um, because these filmmakers just had, I don't want to say they had nothing to uh, prove. That's like kind of the opposite, right? They were, they felt like they had everything to prove, <laughs> but some of them didn't know what they were doing. And that would ultimately make it even more entertaining.
1: Yeah, like I don't know if you get this feeling because there are, there are, it's worth noting because there are a lot of slashers, um, you know, here. Is uh, Trev, the fun thing that's about slashers is because it was kind of like a guaranteed moneymaker. A lot of people were doing it. But it's kind of fun when you check out a slasher to see... Sometimes not even necessarily on the budget level, they're on because some of them, some of them that are made for like 200 grand, honestly, are just as good as the ones made for a million bucks. But it's really more the filmmaker level because there was a lot of people like, there's a lot of people that are like, were actually very good filmmakers Mm -hmm. who ended up making slasher films to help their career. But there's also that thing of like people who raise money amongst their friends and whatever and like never made a movie before and they just made a slasher. And sometimes those are even some of the more fun ones to watch, yeah.
2: No, and again, like you will, we'll talk about some examples in this episode of some really really well-made slashers and then some kind of below the line goofy ones that are um just a blast to watch in their amateurish mm-hmm.
1: so yeah before we start going week weekend by weekend you know obviously this is a time where uh, a lot of us have a little more time than usual to watch some things um i i kind of went wild and took advantage of some discounts my uh TV provider head on some movie channels So I've been catching up on a lot of old shit uh, Is there any like o- Old movies that you've recently discovered For the first time Trev Like from the, either the 80s or 90s or even earlier
2: um, No I mean I'm about to do a deep dive Into a lot of Speaking of slashers I'm about to do a deep dive into a lot of old Giallo films um, So Giallos are the uh, the 60s and 70s Italian films that are kind of You know proto slashers um, like Mario Baba's Blood and Black Lace and um, Bird of the Crystal Plumage and Deep Red from Dario Argento. Um, you know, a genre that really like led to the slasher film. Uh, I've recently noticed that Amazon Prime has like a lot of those on there, and I got really excited as I went down this rabbit hole of just adding more and more to my watch list. So in the weeks ahead, that's kind of one thing I plan to do is just kind of have some giallo nights uh, and really dive down. Yes. But in terms of like revisiting old stuff, um, I will say, because it's certainly something that is worth talking about on on this show, Uh, Joe Bob's Last Drive-In has come back on Shudder, and I've been uh, watching that, and I got a chance to rediscover some films that I hadn't seen in a while, like Brain Damage. Um, He did Heathers, which was really exciting, because Heathers is a movie I love, and I know you love it too, but I realized I hadn't watched it in in years, and it was really fun to get to go back to that. Um, and then even something like pure trash, like blood-sucking freaks, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been very exciting to have Joe Bob back. It's the perfect time for him to be back because, like you said, we're all just kind of stuck at home and, um, you know, quarantine and feeling isolated. And then to get to spend Friday nights watching a double feature with, like, a, a horror host that feels like an old friend and then getting on Twitter and, and you know, following along with all the other people watching. it's It's been great.
1: Yeah. By the way, did you – I think Joe Bob did chop him all, He did, he? yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you happen to catch that episode? Yeah, yet? yeah.
2: I saw, I, I've watched the whole uh, whole season so far. And...
1: Yeah, I really want to see it. Mm-hmm. And, like, once these little discounts – I think I got till September. And then once those discounts, I'm, like, I'm finally going to go through and binge through. Also, Trev, um, there's – um. One thing I really want to watch on Shudder 2, a series about cursed films. Have you happened, happened to watch that one? Yet? I did
2: watch that. Yeah, um, it's it's pretty enjoyable. There's only five episodes. So they did the ex- they started with The Exorcist and The Omen, and I actually think those are the two worst episodes. Um, mm. Partly because, especially with The Exorcist, I felt like it had no new information. I think that's a film that's been talked about to death at this point, in regards to all like the you know the real mystery behind it, and then you know all the stories about people fainting in the theater when they saw it and everything. Um, yeah, but they also kind of really those episodes kind of got me worried about the show a little bit because the Exorcist episode goes on a deviation for a few minutes where they actually go to like a real exorcist and show him doing, you know, allegedly real exorcisms, and it's just so corny and uh, unbelievable. And I was like, well, why is the show doing this? And then even the Omen episode spends a lot of time talking about like the theology of the Antichrist, and it was uh, you know I was just kind of more there to hear about the films. So I was like, eh, I don't know about this show. But then the, the next three episodes really nailed it out of the park. Um, so then they did um, Poltergeist, which was really, really good. In particular, uh, a very powerful moment where uh, Dr. Gary Sherman, who did the third film, kind of tells the this, this story of Heather O'Rourke passing away and the complicated you know backstory of him having to go back and finish a film that nobody wanted to work on anymore. Uh, then they did The Crow, and that was a very, very you know powerful strong episode too and then the last episode which has probably got the most hype to it um maybe you've seen some of the debates is the uh the twilight zone episode
1: um i haven't heard that yeah
2: so they actually and i they they show the footage which i mean i had seen before it's been kind of floating around out there in the ether anyways but they what they didn't do is they didn't put any kind of warning on the episode that they were going to show the footage of the accident. No, oh, and yeah. I thought that's where they they probably should have. You know, there probably should have just been a little thing oh, up yeah. top saying, "Hey, just so you know, this footage is in the episode." Not, I don't believe you can really see much, but even just the idea they're watching it, I think is pretty rough on some people. But I I was in particularly impressed by that episode because um, I learned. I mean, I'd always known about the accident, but I certainly learned things I didn't know, and it was also the first time I've ever I've ever seen anything made as a part of the horror community community, you know, something that's like on shutter and made for shutter that didn't just give John Landis a pass on it. You know, it really, yeah, it really yeah. kind of went into how, yeah, this is, there's some accountability here that we as a fandom should be talking about with this guy. And, uh, that was kind of refreshing. Um, cause I feel like very often, um, you know, John Landis is a figure I have, I like most horror fans. I'm sure, uh, I have my own complicated feelings about him because of this, but, you know yeah, you, you so. still see him invited onto every horror documentary every horror podcast and everyone kind of just uh never brings it up let's he, he's treated as like one of the heroes and it's just it's just odd what we ch- which filmmakers we choose to shun and which ones we we don't you know
1: well you, you know what's so strange about that too is um i don't know if it's cuz the just the internet wasn't around and all that kind of thing um to constantly kind of remind you remind you like when i was a kid even when i went to see the twilight zone movie i knew there was an accident on set i knew vic moore had passed away i don't think i knew the full details of it and i knew the kids passed away too but i don't don't think i knew like all the details and whatever (laughs) but uh you know i went and saw all those landis movies through the 80s and 90s you know like um what's called coming to america innocent blood like i went and saw a lot of john landis movies for a long time and like Like I just didn't know either know about that or I've forgotten about that. So it's it was really like I'd say the early two thousands where I start like really seeing it brought up a lot online and went back and really kind of read yeah you know kind of what happened and then you know the the subsequent trials and whatnot and yeah I know it's like I don't I I mean I think that and the uh, the Victor Salva. Situation are probably the two most tragic things, and yeah, I mean, you know, for modern horror fans, you know,
2: yeah, that's both of those would be just flat out career enders today, you know. Yeah. And the fact that they uh, they went on um to do more afterwards is like you said, and like, and to like, and I agree. I mean, for a long period, I just I liked John Lannis, and like you said, I, I kind of heard about stuff about the Twilight Zone accident, but it wasn't like I didn't have an idea of like the culpability of anybody in it, you know? Right? Yeah.
1: Like you, you just always hear accident, and mm-hmm. you just think, "Oh wow, you know that's a horrible thing. What happened?" But yeah, you know. yeah. But yeah. So, um, I caught a couple old joints. Well, actually, three old joints. so I'll just mention them briefly. The first one, I was just curious if you ever heard of this movie, Trev. It's called. It's from 1988, uh, called Spellbinder.
2: I know. Um, no. I mean, it sounds like maybe something I probably saw in a video store back then. Yeah. yeah.
1: Like, I've never heard of this movie, and I was like, oh, shit, it was available on demand on my cable. So I downloaded it and watched it. And uh, so basically the setup is uh, young Tim Daly and uh, good old, what's his name, Rick Rosevich. They are some young lawyers coming out of a uh, you know, hard day of playing a pickup basketball game at, like, a sports recreation place. And they come out, and they find... Some guy kind of looks like a younger, better-looking, evil version of Steven Seagal in a black trench coat (laughs) and a ponytail, whipping the shit out of a young and beautiful Kelly Preston. So, of course, they got to save her, you know what I mean? So, Tim Daly uh, brings her home, you know, the first night they make love. It's just a a whirlwind romance, and and they're inseparable. But it turns out it wasn't just a crazy ex-boyfriend uh, she's actually wanted by a uh, a coven of witches, and she has her own mysterious past. And uh, I won't say too much about it, but it's a um, witchcraft thriller, and it's kind of notable because, you know, like a big chunk of the movie, you know, has, like, I guess your believability of, like, what Tim Daly's, like, you know, trying to go with and shit and put up with is just, like... Kelly Preston is just so hot. He can't let her go. You know what I mean? He just, <laughs> you know, multiple love making scenes, whatever. And, it, and the thing that's interesting about it is it being such an old, long-ago movie. It was actually written by Tracy Torme, who was the daughter of Mel Torme. Hmm. And it was directed by a woman named Janet Greek. And uh, unfortunately, I guess the movie not doing well kind of uh, hurt her career at the time. Yeah. But but yeah, like super, super fun, crazy, wacky B movie. Like there's, there's a scene... Uh, where the evil covenant witches, they just make a guy's head, like, like catch fire, and it just it's a great gore effect, gag effect. So I would recommend if anybody can come across Spellbinders How to is watch the? it.
2: Uh, I'm looking at it now, and I have to ask, how is the score in it? Because I see the score was done by Basil Polidorus, who... Uh...
1: In, you know, I'm blanking. There was another movie, older movie, recently. I... Um, I I came across that that uh, Basil did the score for, it, which was awesome too. This one is good. I don't want to say it's not, mm-hmm. but it's a little. What I like about his shit is he kind of brings that that kind of original European flair to it. Mm-hmm. So the score is good, but it's it's a little. It's not as exotic as some of his other scores. Yeah. It's a little more like the you know the creeping tension because there's there's a lot of scenes where like tim daly's kind of being stalked and he's looking around and he don't know who's following him and that kind of shit going on so it's a, it's a little more like a traditional suspense score. Yeah. very good but you know i i just like the movie it was fun yeah you know, the filmmaking was good just, people
2: it. are wondering why i bring him up i mean i just so i know like he did the scores for uh like robocop um conan the barbarian starship troopers all three of which are just fantastic themes you know that are like burned into yep. my brain
0: so
1: yeah, so I really recommend anybody check out Spybound. I, I actually was shocked to find out it's actually out on Blu-ray. I think just one of those kind of bare bones, keen little over $20 Blu-rays. But if if uh, it might be playing a couple different places. Um, and then another one I found, which I really fell in love with, another movie for some reason I just never knew existed, 1991 family drama called Crooked Hearts. Have you ever heard of this, Trev? Um, I was blown away by the cast. It's got uh, Peter Coyote as the father... Um, the children are played by Vincent D'Onofrio, Peter Berg, a really young, uh, Noah Wiley and a very young, uh, uh, Juliette Lewis. And it's just this family and it's like pretty much, um, it kind of starts out, you think it's going to be this quirky, lighthearted family drama with Peter Berg coming home from college, having dropped out, kind of, you know, picking himself up. Also, he starts dating a very quirky and weird, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee in it. But but the movie actually gets gets very serious as it goes along because there's a whole pretty good subplot with um, Vincent D'Onofrio trying to kind of reenact uh, revenge on the father played by Pierre Coyote because there's been a long-standing affair that you know the father had that would that really kind of adversely affected the the family and then the way the story kind of wraps up it the you know just kind of the specter of this affair that you know. Some of the kids let it go, but Vincent D'Onofrio couldn't. So, I don't know. I just, I was like, I didn't never heard the movie and I found it. I think it's currently playing on, like, I believe right now you can watch it on Epix, Hulu, and I believe maybe even Amazon Prime. So, if anybody likes a good kind of indie feeling, quirky early 90s drama, I recommend Crooked Hearts. Cool. It's funny, too, because when you watch the trailer, Trev... You you think you're in store for a whack-ass comedy. You, yeah, you think I mean, it's going to be the, silly. The poster looks like that, too, that I'm looking at right yeah, now. Yeah, it, it, it's not. It gets, you know, I don't want to spoil it because cause I was able to go into the movie completely fresh, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But um And then the third one was actually kind of another family drama that I liked a lot. Um A movie I always knew existed but I'd never seen was the... Uh, can't remember if it was ninety one or ninety two. Uh, movie Crisscross with Goldie Hawn. You probably remember that one, Trevor. I,
2: I mean, I, I don't believe I've seen it, but at least that's the first one you brought up that I've heard of, at least. So
1: yeah. yeah. So it's set in nineteen sixty nine, Key West, Florida. Uh, the real main character of the movie is a twelve year old boy, a Goldie Hawn son, and uh, the father was a, a traumatized Vietnam veteran. Um, he was actually like a pilot. He accidentally blew up a school for kids on a bombing run. So the the dad ran away from the family. So it's pretty much this young boy who's like very much a, you know, a street smart like you know raising himself kid, you know him dealing with like this whole kind of fucked up thing. It just it's just a really good coming of age movie, kind of harder edge coming of age movie. The I looked it up. The kid who's in it, the twelve year old boy, like he never did anything else. And he he like I thought I was going to like watch it and like watch it in two or three parts. Like I pretty much just watched it all the way through. Like it it just held my interest. This kid. You know, just being a raw talent, like, I don't know, I, I thought he carried the movie really good, and Goldie Hawn's really great in it too, Arliss Howard, I think, so, yeah, Arliss Howard is in it too, so yeah, crisscross, don't sleep on it, cool. and I think that was another one that was available at a multitude of places, so if you have some uh, streaming services out there, check them out.
2: Um, now that I, now I, you know, it's funny, because a few weeks ago, I did rewatch something, not, like, I don't know why this didn't occur to me when I asked it, and it actually fits into our, our horror theme. This is actually 91, so this isn't quite an 80s film, but it was something that I – so this is more of a revisit for me, but I wanted to bring it up because it's a film that I always mean to give more attention to, and uh, this is just a perfect opportunity. This is actually a a 1991 HBO film. Remember the, the early '90s? There was a lot of like HBO original movies, you know, which they still do here and there. But it was like kind of a bigger genre back then. And I don't know if you've seen this one yeah. or not, Go. But this is a, a, a like a horror noir film they made called "Cast a Deadly Spell," starring Fred Ward.
1: I remember it. I remember it being on. I. I know I've seen parts of it, but, you know, I don't think I've ever seen the whole thing all the way through. Yeah,
2: so it's actually, I mean, it's got, you know, Fred Ward, uh, Julianne Moore is in it as well, and David Warner. Uh, directed by Martin Campbell, who people will know is, um, you know, one of the, the the big James Bond directors. He did Goldeneye and Casino Royale. Um, and it's, uh, you know, Fred Ward plays a detective named uh, Howard Philip Lovecraft. You know, it's not—it's pretty on the yeah. nose.
1: <laughs> H.B. Lovecraft. But, yeah, but
2: it's a, it's a 40s, you know, set, uh, you know, hard-boiled noir film with him as this kind of you know he's h.p lovecraft but as a like you know real tough private eye who's uh investigating this case but in a world where it takes place in los angeles but it's a los angeles where magic is real and just everybody um accepts it you know um so like you know zombies are kind of used as labor and uh you know there's kind of social classes that are based on who can use magic and who can't and this ends up being this whole story that revolves around the Necronomicon. Um, It's really, really fun. Um, You know, um, the comedy doesn't always land, but like just the inventiveness of it and like the cool practical effects and just that just that merger of like film noir with fantasy elements. um, Really kind of a blast. It's actually available to watch on Amazon Prime at the moment, uh, or at least it was when I checked it out a few weeks ago. Um, It's one I've always been hoping for like some kind of Blu-ray special release. But because it's an HBO movie, I think there's probably some, you know, difficulties to that.
1: Yeah, I was going to bring that up because there was a lot of those great ones, too, that um, uh, were very, they were out of print for a long time. And a few of them came out in the very, very early days of like non anamorphic DVDs. And they went out of print quick and they were going for like 60, 70 bucks. Yeah, there was a lot of those. So so, like I like you said, like there's there's all different legalities with that. Mm -hmm. I kind of have a secret hope and wish that maybe some of those movies can come back when they launched HBO Max and are just kind of raiding the vaults for anything to compete against Netflix. But, you know, I won't hold my breath.
2: Yeah, I hope because actually I know, too, um, a few years later they did a sequel to it called Witch Hunt. um, And I don't know what the backstory is behind this, but for the sequel, Fred Ward did not come back. um, So Dennis Hopper actually played Lovecraft in that one and that one was um set in the 50s so it was kind of in, went into a uh, like a communism uh, mccarthyism story but again with magic you know playing a part into it i don't remember that one as well i remember when uh, castleville spell came out that it, as a as a kid i watched it a lot and so even revisiting it recently it was kind of coming back to me i was watching it i think witch hunt i only saw like once or twice when it first debuted and i haven't seen it since that might speak to the quality of it it's probably a slightly underwhelming sequel but now I find myself really wanting to wanting to revisit it since I just watched the first one again.
1: Yeah, man, the, 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 golden, age. Hmm. <laughs> the golden age. The golden age. That's why I'm, I'm still surprised that, um, you know, that, that I can find stuff from the 80s and 90s that I haven't seen yet. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like, even in this day and age, no matter how much I watch. Man,
2: you know what 80s film I just revisited for the first time in a, in a really, really long time? I mean, decades, was um Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Oh yeah. I've been spending some of the quarantine doing some kind of like, you know, Zoom movie watches with a friend who uh, you know, a younger friend who hasn't seen a lot of these films and uh, anytime I mention some film from my childhood or something, she's like, "Is that worth seeing?" and then if it is, we'll we'll watch it. And that was a very interesting one to go back to because uh man, it was it it held, it, it pretty much holds up, but the fact that that was a kids movie back then with the you know just like flat out oh, murder in it and you got like the little yeah. like the little baby talking about his like three inch dinky and how he's upset that he can't <laughs> screw this human I woman know. and it's just like wow man what <laughs> disney was uh was going for with that film
1: yeah i'm surprised that hasn't uh, ended up on the list of censored disney plus films yeah well i mean it
2: was censored a long time ago i remember when they had to cut the uh the upskirt shot of uh, Jessica Rabbit out of the film after it was, it was on. Yeah. it was on the laserdisc, and too many people were pausing it.
1: <laughs> you're Right, yeah. Especially with laserdisc, you could get a much better, uh, yeah. you know, pause screen going on. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that's fun. I'm sure that I'm sure the next time we get together, we'll have you some even more uh, quarantine deep dives. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: So yeah, so everybody, let us know uh, what you're watching out there. How can you do that? Who knows. <laughs> <laughs> reach out to us find us we're somewhere so yeah so uh let's paint the picture a little bit how hot and heavy the uh the early 80s was were horror and a lot of slasher so we're rolling into January 1981 uh I don't know how successful how long it played but I do know uh around December 18th or 19th of 1980 One of my faves, uh, New Year's Evil came out. So, and then the next horror film to be released was January 7th. Um, so yeah, so like we're pretty much, and sometimes they'll go even week by week, but for the most part, you'll notice the trend of there's pretty much a new horror movie coming out this year, Trev, around this time period, about every two weeks. So there was, yeah. And
2: I mean, obviously this is 81. So as people might've noticed from all the, uh, anniversary posts that have been populating on the internet in the last week or so, um, the 1980s saw the release of friday the 13th right. which is of course like a giant hit and just immediately led into a just a glut of slasher ripoffs um trying to cash in and most of them doing quite well at you know not necessarily quality wise but cashing in wise
1: yeah yeah uh, feeding the uh, fan base for sure mm-hmm. so yeah so we'll get started here Excuse me, I had to clear my throat. Um, so we're rolling off right into the year, January 7th, with a, a motion picture t- titled Scream. Have you seen this one, Trev?
2: Yes, I have. Uh, it's nice. been a long time. Um, this is one that I primarily remember. For, it's one of those like uh, video covers that if you were a child of the 80s, it's burned into your brain. I guarantee if people go look yeah. it up, they'll be like, "Oh yeah, I remember that cover with like the uh, I don't, I don't want to. That's not a scythe, right? But some kind of like, um, you know, whatever that kind of yeah."
1: C- I was, I was looking at the poster, mm-hmm. yeah, um, yeah, it, it, it's oh no no, I'm sorry, the poster is different. The poster is like a really bizarre like painting and a hand coming up. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think the video cover is different. Yeah,
2: but uh, I, I it's one that I remember not digging that much. Uh, when I visited it years ago, looking back on it, I feel like I would probably enjoy it more now. Um, I think nowadays I kind of enjoy, ironically, some of these like bad slashers a little bit more. Uh, what I know about this one is um, it's kind of like set in this like old west town, and uh, yeah. it's uh, it's a more supernatural slasher uh, where the the killer is just kind of this uh, you know this this ghost that's going around, and they actually end up teaming up with this like ghost of a cowboy. Who is uh, an old, you know, like an old west cowboy ghost who's trying to hunt this other ghost? Um, that sounds way more badass than the movie is, but it's probably it's probably a good movie for like a bad movie night if I, if my memory serves.
1: Yeah, I, I I think I actually for the first time discovered this movie when we were doing the nineteen eighty one you know year in movies or whatever, and uh yeah like I mean really nobody of 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 note cast wise is in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just was brought into the. Uh, you know, intrigued by the storyline of people going on a camping tour of the Rio Grande spending a night in old ghost town. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sounded pretty cool. <laughs> so, yeah. So that that's a little more of a deep cut. But, lost, uh, lost the
2: time because of course, you know, years later, Wes Craven would, uh, would take that title and put it to much better use. But
1: <laughs> right. Right. I, I think it, this movie might be like a curiosity of like, yeah, like it's kind of ironic that more movies didn't steal that title, mm-hmm. to be honest. But, um, yeah, exactly 15 years later. It felt like it was like 40 years later. <laughs> that Wes Craven screen came out, but it was only 15 years. So January 14th, and I would have to think this started in a limited release, but maybe I'm wrong. But January 14th, we really started getting the meat and potatoes of this year in Horror Travel with the release of uh, David Cronenberg's Scanners.
2: Yeah. Um, how do you find you a Scanners fan?
1: Yeah, I'm a Scanners fan. It's, it's not one... That I would say I watch a shitload. Yeah. Like, like I have the Blu-ray of it and everything. Um, and really, to be real honest, the reason I kind of don't watch it a shitload is that I kind of seen it a shitload mm-hmm. <laughs> as a youth. and I And I always remember, I would always catch it at the beginning when the... The one guy is like eating like the leftover pizza in the food court in the mall and everybody's like, oh, gross, he's homeless.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting because it's one of those films where like everybody knows the film, but at the same time, 95 percent of people only know the first five minutes of the film. Um, Its most iconic part is right at the beginning. And then I think people forget that there's a whole movie after that. Um, right. Yeah, it's I like it. I have the criterion of it. It's quite good. Um, it's not one of my favorite Cronenberg films, and I don't know if you agree with this take, uh, Goat, but I'd say ultimately the reason for that is it's one of those instances of a, a great movie that's still hampered by a very bad lead performance. I mm-hmm. think because uh, so Stephen Lack as the main character is is I mean I'm just gonna say he's he's bad it's a it's, he's very he's not an actor he was like a friend of Cronenberg's he put in the film and it it shows um, he's just blown off the screen by Michael Ironside in this uh, and I feel like with a more dynamic like lead performance this would probably be higher up in the in the Cronenberg filmography but still definitely like a, if you're if you're Cronenberg fan it's a must and it's it's still definitely enjoyable.
1: Yeah I mean I I think. It's just really hard because it's it's uh, it is such a classic, and I think for a lot of people, just the notoriety of it, would they would probably rank it in the top three of Cronenberg films. Mm-hmm. But for me, like the movie I like to go to the most when I really want that old school Cronenberg like weirdness, whatever medical whatever vibe is. I don't know about you, but I really like going back to The Brood, and uh,
2: the The Brood is great. I, mean, I also I, I I think mine is um, Shivers. So
1: yeah shivers is good yeah I, w- I was lucky that i saw um i always get shivers in um rabbit, the other one that the, yeah and rabbit mixed up, mm-hmm. but I know I saw one of those and um the brood in a repertory theater in the late nineties that's how I was introduced to them. And, uh, yeah. And, like, it's kind of funny, though, because, like, even when I watch, uh, Stephen King's The Dead Zone, which Cronenberg made, like, the early parts, like, where he's recovering from the accident and shit, I, I don't know, it's just something about those early, uh, Cronenberg Canadian joints, they always have the same, in a good way, the same feel to me, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? It's, it's always about medical science shit gone awry. Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) He does. He does. Yeah. He does dread better than a, like a lot of other filmmakers. Just that kind of yeah. that slow creeping dread that comes into his films, with even like the droning score and everything. Um, it's uh, yeah. There's definitely a, a vibe to him. Um, I've always been sad that he kind of got to a point where he just completely walked away from horror. I don't begrudge him it because obviously you're allowed to. But uh, I always wish he'd come back yeah. and done like one more. You know.
1: Where do you think his transitional film where he really stepped out of it? Because I know he did some weird shit afterwards, but to me Dead Ringers was kind of the true swan song of like... The OG Cronenberg.
2: Yeah. I mean, like you said, he would step back from time. You know, like films like Spider and Existence have horror elements. But,
1: um, you know. One, Same with Crash, really. Yeah.
2: But, I mean, once you get to the point where he's doing, you know, like Eastern Promises and History of Violence, mm-hmm. which don't get me wrong, I love. I mean, History of Violence is, yeah. is in my top three, Cronenberg. But, uh, yeah, it's it was clear that he was just kind of putting that behind him. And I think, you know, you'd even hear him say in interviews he just had nothing more. Interest, he had nothing more to say with the horror genre. So, fair enough.
0: Yeah.
1: So, yeah, so, like I said, pretty much on the the schedule of every two weeks, then on january twenty eighth we had a film <laughs> who I'm ashamed that I didn't uh you know I haven't really watched I've seen parts of it for mm-hmm. sure um, and, you know always catch it on cable bits and pieces but uh the the film with the tagline very original tagline, I might add, just when you thought it was safe to go in the back wa- back in the water, you can't get to it, and that's blood beach starring the great uh, thespians Burt Young and John Saxon and uh, this movie I think is really from what I've seen of it Trev uh, I think this is like when you really want to watch something that would have played at a drive-in or a yeah. grind house in the early 80s yeah
2: this is another one with uh, just a very classic poster too uh, oh, the
1: poster's brilliant. Another
2: image that I, I just, is like, um, it's just so recognizable to me from from many uh, video store trips as a kid. And that's a poster I would love to get my hands on now and, and hang up, you know, because uh, it's just, like you said, it's brilliant. Um, I, I think like you, I mean, I know I've seen, I don't know if I've ever seen this movie in full. I certainly have yeah. memories of scenes, um, yeah, seeing them uh, on cable quite a bit. I got, I, I need to revisit it. Cause what a great idea for a film. So as you know, people can kind of take from that tagline um, and the title blood beach, this is actually, it's, it's like Jaws, but if, if the shark was in the sand um, it's some creature that's actually in the sand dragging people down. Um, I thought the most Im- amazing thing about this looking at it today, uh, and I don't know if you saw this goat, but oddly enough, this is just mind blowing to me. It was produced by Sir Run Run Shaw, who is the right, right. who in, he was the creator of the Shaw Brothers studio. <laughs> I don't yeah, know how yeah. he got to a point where he was producing Blood Beach, a John Saxon Burt Young uh 81 creature yeah. horror film, but uh okay.
1: I mean the the only thing I can think of is is maybe he was just wanting to like kind of branch out more into more global things mm-hmm. and um I mean this would have really been a um you know, I would think for the most part, uh, you know, I haven't seen the box office numbers, but I think this would pretty much be a, you know, a safe uh, financial investment. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and they totally got the, because most of the clips I remember seeing it is like the scenes where like Burt Young and John Saxon are like arguing and shit, mm-hmm. <laughs> or they're like getting all bug eyed about like seeing people get like, you know, sucked into the sand and all that shit. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So yeah, Blood Beach, another kind of cult classic, which is uh, I would say really like to me, from what I've seen, is really become more of a cult thing. I'd say in during the you know the last ten to fifteen years of this whole retro movie podcast era, because I've seen a, a uh, listened to a lot of shows talk about it. Yeah. So yeah. And then also for January twenty eighth, this is a little controversial. We're not sure. Mm-hmm. We did our research, but we got conflicting uh, reports. But we have the, I guess would be the, um, possibly the um, uh, North American release of Zombie 2, mm-hmm. a.k.a. Lucio Fulci Zombie, which came out in Italy in 1979. Some places have it listed as coming out in America in 1980. Yeah. Um, per, or, or I should say, uh, not necessarily America, but English language markets. Nineteen eighty, but this is still in January, so it's possible. Yeah. maybe it got a wider expansion or yeah, I mean, or something. you have to
2: remember back then we were still in the era where some movies, especially you know, um, indie films or international pickups, were still kind of doing that that seventies um, release, you know, strategy of. Coming out in markets, you know, being released in yeah. you know the northeast market at one time, and then rolling across the U.S. So it's it's quite possible this was coming out in different areas of the U.S. at different times. So somebody, some part of the U.S. might have got it for the first time in '81. Yeah. Um. I mean, if it's here, we should talk about it briefly. Zombie is awesome. I uh, yeah, I'm, a, yeah. I'm a huge Fulci guy. Um. So this is uh You know, one of his um more notable films. Not to me. Not not his best by any means, but. Obviously, one of the most iconic posters and taglines and uh, a film that, you you know, you have to be patient with it quite a bit. The Most of the action is confined to the last 30 minutes or so. But, yeah. but once you get to those 30 minutes, man, is it just a great, uh, incredible gore fest. And then even before that, you know, you got, of course, the classic zombie versus shark scene. Um, yep. One of the best eye impalements ever on screen and just an Probably in, the best, yeah. incredible, credible score by Fabio Frizzi um, that is just, uh, you know, top notch in terms of horror soundtracks. So, yeah, you know, and for people who don't know, it's this it's an unofficial sequel to Dawn of the Dead, which was released in Italy as right. zombie um, there. They don't care about copyright laws. So they just make That's fake horrible. sequels all the time. Um, ostensibly, this is
1: they made a fake job.
2: yeah. <laughs> ostensibly, this is really meant to be like a prequel to Dawn of the Dead, showing how the, the zombie invasion came to the U.S. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know, I don't know why I'm talking about this much. If you're a horror fan, chances are you've seen this, and particularly if you're into the zombie genre, this is one of the classics,
1: yeah. So, yeah, I, I would think, I would say for me, even though I like, I was so blown away by this, the zombie versus shark moment, and I always loved the eye impalement just to me the part of the movie that grooves the best is i just love the in part where like that that fucking droning music is playing it's like mm-hmm. and then all the zombies are coming in they're just like mowing them down wave by wave shooting them like i love that yeah so yeah so if it did come out in 1981 zombies huge thing And yeah, like you did not have to wait long after uh, Blood Beach and possibly zombie playing at your local drive-in, because on February 11th, we had Rolling In, just in time for all them sweet-ass dates, we had My Bloody Valentine. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: What's your history with My Bloody Valentine, Trevor? Because I have to admit, I was very, very, very late to this party. Always saw the, the, had a very memorable VHS cover, but for some reason never rented it. And I didn't even see it until I just blind bought the uh, original Blu-ray that came out of it. And I love it now. I think it's a really fun movie.
2: Yeah, I, I came to this one late, too. It's either I came to it late or I'm, I'm guessing it was probably one of, you know, a hundred slashers I rented in the, um, you know, late 80s, early 90s when I was just getting to be. Uh, I probably talked about this before on this podcast, but I was lucky enough to um, live within walking distance of a really cool independent video store. And I'm sure we have other listeners who have this experience. Um, you know, when a video store is not corporate, it's pretty lax. And my mom had actually gone in there and put a note on her account saying that even though Trevor is only like, you know, 12 or whatever, he can rent R-rated films if he wants. <laughs> they were like, fine. So oh, I, yeah. uh, you know, I was, you know, as like many kids, kind of a latchkey kid waiting for my parents to come home after school. I would just go rent. I just burned through that horror section. And I rented like every slasher back then. And they all became just a jumble. I probably saw my bloody Valentine at that time, but I wasn't really conscious of it in a bigger way, really, until about when the the, the remake was coming, and revisiting it at that at that point. Um, like you, I do I do enjoy it quite a bit now. I'm I am on record as liking the remake more. Um, I think it's one of the oh, it's one of the more fun wow. one of the more fun remakes of that era. But uh, but they're both good, and uh, my bloody Valentine, you know, Harry Warden is a. I'm, it's just shocking that there weren't sequels to this, right? Because just the image of him yeah. is just so one of the best looking slashers, you know? I, agree. I mean, it's a simple costume. It is just a mining costume, but damn, it looks good on screen and, and very intimidating and very scary.
1: I, yeah, I really enjoyed the remake as well. It just, there's something about the original, it has a real you know, what they, what they called it back in that day with the slasher boom, the, the Canadian carpetbagger mm-hmm. kind of feel to it. I I don't know. I just, well, it's, it has it's a, the
2: rare slasher where the cast is like, um, adults, right. Which is right, know, pretty right. interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah. They work in a, a mine, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, when you said you're surprised this one didn't get any sequels, I'm kind of surprised that Remake didn't get any sequels. I mean,
2: that's one of the all-time frustrations because that was a huge hit. Um, the writer and director were ready to do sequels. The the uh, uh, I know um, uh, the actor's name escapes me, the guy from Supernatural. He was down for it, and it was the studio for some reason who just decided not to pursue it, which was always mind-boggling to me. Um, yeah, I don't know. Studios can be really stupid sometimes, you know? It,
1: yeah, they really can. And again and again more just, you know, my bloody Valentine coming out doing real well. Um right around the corner coming up on March 6th. Um I've actually seen this recently come up on a lot of people's lists as actually being the the scariest movie of 1981, Trev. And it's kind of like ironic cuz like I wouldn't know it, but it's it, it was actually a Disney release, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about The Devil and Max Devlin. Uh the storyline is Elliot Gould plays a slum lord basically. Uh, he gets killed, run over a bus, he goes all the way down to the depths of hell, and he meets the devil, a.k.a. Barney Satin, played none other, in a very chilling and terrifying turn. <laughs> I mean, you could just see it when you look at the theatrical poster, played by, you know, none other than, uh, you know, the late, great Bill Cosby.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, who, of course, died, um, you know, early in the 90s, and we never heard anything about him ever again. Um Yeah.
1: Yeah, apparently, apparently he went blind very quickly and was never seen again. Yeah,
2: um, and that's why we have nothing but good memories of him. Um, exactly. Yeah, put in pops. I don't know. Is this is this available on Disney Plus? Uh, I'm guessing they're. I I'm it. guessing they're in no rush to <laughs> acknowledge this film. Uh, but uh, the poster does make me does make me laugh quite a bit. Uh, you yeah. know, looking at it now in retrospect, uh, it does uh, take on a new connotation. Uh, you know, you have Bill Cosby wearing the devil horns, kind of. Hovering over Elliot Gould. But uh I don't know. I mean I would watch this. I love Elliot Gould and particularly Elliot Gould of this time period was a great leading man.
1: Um Yeah, I don't know. I don't know much about it. I've never seen it, but uh it's I I, I haven't either I you know the title I knew. Mm -hmm. And uh but yeah, I'm I'm doing a a search on Disney Plus right now on my phone. No results found for the devil and Max And yeah, Not surprising.
2: I do see on Wikipedia. <laughs> this is interesting. It was apparently so. It says Jimmy Sangster conceived it in 1973, and it was supposed to be a Hammer film, a, a Hammer horror film called The Fairy Tale Man, starring Vincent Price. And wow. then it, then it went in a turnaround, and eventually got to Walt Disney, who said, "Well, let's get Bill Cosby, Ali Gould, and make it into more of a comedy." Um, so yeah. all right.
1: right. <laughs> you knew that Bill Cosby would be even more terrifying the Vincent price mm-hmm.
2: this also says that um bill cosby had turned down a different roles from off uh, from some roles from disney before and he his wife expressed reservations about him playing the devil because she didn't know if an african-american actor should play the devil bill cosby oh. took the part because the role had already been played by whites primarily before this mm. is that why bill cosby wanted to play the devil i don't know <laughs> he was breaking new ground
1: <laughs> He probably did a lot of research too.
2: Maybe this was it. Maybe this is where he lost his way. Got too deep into the research.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, it was only a couple years after that. You know, him being such a method actor, as we all know, even more of a method actor than even Heath Ledger. I'm surprised he was able to pull himself out of this and go on to become Cliff Huxtable. Just what two or three years later. So
2: maybe in his mind, you know, it could be all subtext. But maybe Cliff Huxtable was the devil in that show.
1: Yeah. So, also on March 6th, um, another really well-talked-about uh, horror film, um, and I would have to think this would not be a wide release ever. The, 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 either This this had to be, I would think, a platform release, slowly seeped around from market to market, but we're talking about the the greasy, classic William Lustig's Maniac.
2: Yeah, uh, another film just recently featured on uh, Joe Bob Briggs' show. Uh, he brought on Tom Savini as a guest to talk about the effects. Um Man, I'm going to lose so much '80s cred with your listeners when I say this is another film where I prefer the remake.
0: Uh-oh.
2: But uh, that said, uh, Maniac is, of course, I mean, it's, it is it is a really great uh, exploitation film, and you just you just Joe Spinell in this movie is is um, next level. You know, it's it's a great performance, incredible Savini effects, and like you said. Uh, I've probably stated before on here how I love kind of any movie that takes place in New York in the 70s or 80s. That, yeah. that just greasy, grimy, dirty New York feel, and this is one of the better ones at capturing that.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're both going to go down the credibility toilet here because I have to admit, while I like this movie and I think it's good, like it's kind of become more of a beloved cult classic, i say, in the last 10 to 15 years because when I was growing up, Trev, this was really only – Known, I'd say, for being a, like kind of like the early work of Savini. It mm-hmm. wasn't known as being like a great movie. Whereas, like I think the appreciation for the lead actor Joe Spinell has really come up a, a lot in the last ten to fifteen years, yeah. and now I I see more people. Being all about this movie because of his performance. You yeah,
2: know? and I mean it was like – it's one of those films too when you were younger, right? You, like even for me and you – like when we were at that certain age going to, and renting all those films, this is one of the ones that had that reputation of, oh, this is one of the really rough ones, you know? And, yeah. and knowing that that poster and everything and being like, ooh, have you yeah. seen and then I don't know if it – it, it I, to me as someone who's seen so many of these films, it never really lives up to that reputation. I mean certainly it is gory, but it's not that gorier than other films that were coming out at the time. Um and I guess, you know, I it is this like exploration of this character's psyche, but it's pretty surface level. But I mean ultimately it works. It is it's 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 very short, it's a quick watch, and yeah, Spinell's performance is what pulls you through. Um and it, it builds to one heck of a finale too. Yeah. And it does have one of the best I mean, this is interesting that in eighty one we got Scanners and Maniac because those are two of the best head explosions on film.
1: That's true. That's true. May- maniac over what was it six pounds of uh, shrimp cocktail mm-hmm. was <laughs> used yeah. in the special effect
2: yeah they said the car smelled so bad afterwards they just they just threw the car into the river they just dumped it
1: oh in the river yeah like, We're talking about, like not even like was, abandoned yeah, like
2: <laughs> i believe it was uh ryan turek who recently on twitter was because joe bob shared that fact and ryan turek was saying you know we got to get some horror fans together and go start searching the river for that car it's like this whole it's got to be this horror community oh, holy God. grail yeah. now
1: uh so, yeah. and then hot on the heels of maniac and the devil max devlin that the next week was uh the uh the tobey hooper mm-hmm. uh, uh minor cult classic i say the fun house yeah which uh which yeah it's i don't know if it's a movie i remember it being played quite a bit on cable back in the day mm-hmm. But uh, even with it being one of the early kind of Screen Factory releases, I haven't heard too much buzz on the Funhouse, and I think it's kind of... um Unfortunate, because I think it's got a a, a great monster slash villain in it.
2: Yeah, this is one that I've really come around on more in, in recent years. Uh, I was I didn't really like it when I first saw it uh, a long time ago, and uh, I don't even know what what was the impetus for me to revisit it. But uh, I, I now own the Scream Factory Blue. I've, I've come around on it, find it a lot of fun. I, I think ultimately it was that thing of I'm sure we've talked about Toby Hooper before. Um, you know, the original Text Chainsaw Massacre is one of my favorite films. Um. And Toby Hooper's filmography is an odd one to me because it doesn't have the consistency of many of the other, like you know, so-called masters of horror of that era. And even even to the point where there's no like he doesn't have a consistent tone throughout his filmography, so it's really tough to right. get a sense of what kind of director he is. And I think I definitely went through a period when I was younger where I, where I wished every Toby Hooper film felt like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And so the ones that were like a little goofier or felt a little bit more polished, I, I had kind of a you know, I put up some armor against, but, uh, as, uh, it's just a really fun slasher with a great, uh, you know, makeup design. Yeah. I've, I've definitely come around on this one. And just like the carnival is such a fun setting too.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I I think I'm a little, um, higher on Toby Hooper's uh, filmography than a lot of people. And part of it is to me that it was just kind of all over the place. Mm -hmm. Like the guy did straight up horror. He did kind of black comedy horror. He did, um, kind of family stuff with poltergeist and uh, invaders from mars Mm -hmm. invaders from mars like that
2: yeah it's a great movie
1: yeah yeah like i really loved it as a kid and when it came out on blu-ray i snapped it up and uh it kind of was exactly what i remembered and it was it it was kind of i think it's 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 a movie and there's not many movies that do this but i think invaders from mars is intentionally hokey in a good way Mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah i know
2: yeah, no, I mean I'm with you. I mean I, I he's I've like I said, but I've been I've been able to come around on that on his filmography more. Um, although Life Force, man, that's a movie where I wish I, oh, yeah. I always wish I liked it more than I did. Um, I've, I've given it so many tries, and I just I find it kind of I consistently find it more boring than it should be. Um, yeah. There are certainly things I like about it, in particular two things, uh, both belonging to Matilda May, but. Uh, <laughs> of course <laughs> but uh yeah it's 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 never quite as good as i want it to be every time i go back to it but i have yeah. but yeah i love invaders from mars i now really like funhouse um yeah so no i, I am mean, i'm with you he's he's it's it's an interesting filmography i i don't want to hold his last few films against him cuz i know no. he was really battling you know budgets and you know issues with creative control and things like that And so that's right. too bad but uh yeah so I'm, I'm 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 team Huppert, so
1: yeah, yeah, I would definitely recommend to people of the Fun House if if you want to watch kind of like a good nightmarish kind of fun slasher, mm-hmm. and you know you're tired of watching Friday Thirteenth over and over and over. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So yeah, a week later we had this is a little more dramatic horror, but March twentieth we were rolling on with uh, Omen Three: The Final Conflict, mm-hmm. which a movie I enjoy a lot. Yeah, um, this is the one where Sam Neill takes over the role of Damien Wrightroth.
2: Yeah. Uh... Here we go again. Let's see if how if anyone has turned this off yet because of me. Let's see if I can get some more now. This, this is <laughs> uh, this is my favorite Omen film. I I, pre- oh. I prefer this to the original, uh, and I went to and I, and I, it's it's particularly because of not just Sam Neill's performance, which I think is really really good. Um, I'm a huge Sam Neill fan, and I love anytime he's in a genre film. In fact, I think I have every Sam Neill genre film on Blu-ray. Because he's got just wow. such a great track record in in like horror and sci-fi, right? When you look at things like Possession and um, Event Horizon and Jurassic Park, uh, when he went, you know, in the Mouth of Madness, when he picks a horror film, he picks good ones, you know. And uh, yeah, and Omen. The great thing about Omen Three is it's it's the only Omen film where Damien is completely like driving the narrative, and the you know actually is the antagonist, right? Like he's not just of this figure that other people are fighting over or just discovering his powers he's fully in control now he's the villain he's you know t- trying to enact this plot to take uh you know to get kind of invested into the US government uh and it's great i mean it's he's 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 awesome in this there's a really kind of I, I don't know if you remember if you watched it recently enough to uh, go to remember this but uh there's a kind of a good comedic beat to it dark comic where there's this kind of um cult that's trying to take him out and every time they do, just something goes horribly wrong, and they end up kind of always getting like you know murdered as they're trying to kill him. And I just always find that very funny. Uh, but yeah, I really enjoy this one. It's to me, it's the, it's the peak of the of the Omen trilogy.
1: Yeah, like like I have to say, I re- I really enjoy. It. It's been a few years. Probably I have I have the Blu Ray set that horrible Blu Ray set. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, it's probably been about eight years. And I was late to this one. Um, I had seen. I actually, for like all those years growing up, I had only seen the original Omen and then the remake. And then, like, I was like, "Oh, you know, the the remake actually got mo- you know more interested and revisited and everything." And uh, you know, through Netflix DVD, how old school that is. You know, I did two and three, and um, yeah, I really like the series. Um, mm-hmm. I would say to me, the first two feel more like a horror movie, horror movie, where it's like oh, this little devil, this little antichrist. Whereas what I kind of like, the way Omen 3 kind of opens it up, it feels more like it's almost like, um, to me at least, I feel like Omen 3 feels a little less like a straight-up horror movie and more like almost like a religious drama. Yeah. Especially with the way it kind of concludes in the end. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, like like I, I like the movie, but I'm kind of like, I don't even think, I don't even know if the movie would even work at all if it wasn't for Sam Neill's performance.
2: Yeah, I can see that. I mean, uh, to, to go back to something else you said, though, about the way it concludes, I'll, I'll give it that, too, is the nice thing about it is that I feel like this is rare in series of the time where it actually does bring, it does give the whole trilogy a conclusion, too, right? So that's nice, too. That it right. actually feels like the end of the story that begins in, in the first film. and I, I And I like the conclusion. I think it works. So there is like a sense of, a satisfying sense of finality to it um and yeah it's definitely it's definitely driven by the sam neill performance he's got a couple monologues in it that are really powerful and uh yeah i mean I, I, you might be right but the fact is he is in it and he's got most of the screen time so oh yeah he's awesome yeah
1: yeah um just just as a footnote um because i even though i wasn't overly familiar with the entire season, series really only familiar with the first film at the time but i did watch those uh those made-for-TV sequels that came later, and I, I don't personally—I don't feel like they do the series justice yeah. enough to really consider them part of the franchise. You mm-hmm. know, to me, it's just the first three, and then the 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 John Moore remake. <laughs> I can't,
2: I can't even, I can't even deal with that remake, man.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I kind of have a soft spot for the remake for the simple fact that I love the gimmick that they made it for a release date. They literally, the, the studio admitted the only reason they remade the Omen, Mm -hmm. uh, when they did at least like maybe they would have remade it eventually, but, but they, they rushed it in production so they could release it on June 6, 2006. Mm And I am totally not a, um, you know, first, first day of release type movie guy, but I made it a point (laughs) to go see it on that date. And, uh, it is what it is. I don't hate the movie, but what I appreciate it is it got me into the series again. Yeah, like and I mean, me well, to, you know. then
2: ultimately the the fact that they rushed shown by the fact that they just basically used the script again, right? They didn't even rewrite it or anything. Oh
1: yeah, yeah, it's copy and paste. Big yeah,
2: it's kind of kinda it. like that that uh, the Hitcher remake that happened, and in both those cases, yeah. you know, or like the even, I mean, in more recently, we've seen it happen with the the Cabin Fever remake, where you just, you know, you remake something, you use the exact same script, and it just never ends up. Uh, yeah. it's interesting because like you'd think by the odds, like if you're just using the same script, there's always a chance one of those could turn out to be better. Right. But the problem is it's always an, it's right. always an inferior filmmaker or something doing it. so, um, you know, John Moore is not Richard Donner by any means.
1: No, he's not. And, uh, this has nothing to do with horror, Trev, but I was just shocked to see this on the list. I'm shocked. Also on the same date, uh, was the release of the postman always rings twice. I swear I always thought The Postman Always Rings twice came out in like the mid-70s. I had no idea it was in 1981. Oh, um, that is weird. Is that the know?
2: only – I mean that's – well, that's
1: – The Jack Nicholson version. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah.
2: I'm surprised at that because I know there's also like the 40s version. That feels like in my head yeah. I was, you would think that's something that would be made like every decade. But I guess those are the
1: only right. two,
0: huh?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, so rolling along to March 23rd, this has an asterisk with the, well, not asterisk, but Renan sees with the UK next to it. So, I'm not sure exactly what this means. Possibly only a UK release. And it is what you think it would be from the title. It was And I've never seen it, Trevor, but the 1981 British science fiction horror movie in Seminoid.
2: Yeah, no, I've <laughs> never seen it either, but uh, quite the poster. I don't know if you, that's the kind of thing where yeah. I don't know if you need to see it. If you've seen the poster, I think you got it,
1: you know? Yeah, yeah. It's It's exactly the. The, the illustrator earned his uh mm-hmm. keep on that so yeah so rolling on after that march 27th um was eyes of a stranger and i was actually i love the poster of this movie i don't know if you're familiar with this movie at all trev i am not uh at all but i will say it has some notes uh it's a 1981 american slasher film directed by ken wiederhorn who would go on to do uh some other movies like uh shockwaves return of the living dead part two but it has uh makeup effects by Tom Savini and it was the uh, movie debut of Jennifer Jason Lee. and it's it's kind of ironic. I I know nothing about this movie other than what I read, but it looks very very uh exploit, you know, exploitation based mm-hmm. and it's ironic that it was released by uh Warner Brothers. So mm. yeah. I, I thought it was something like I gotta track this down if there if it I don't even know if it's had a release in the you know the the DVD disc whatever era but
2: yeah I, I just found out about it when you when you gave me this list because um I I had no idea that Weeder had made another horror film because all what I know about Weeder is I I really I love Shockwaves um, I'm on record as being a, a you know. A not super enthusiastic, but just enthusiastic enough defender of return of the living dead part two. I, I know it's not yeah. very good, but I have a sentimental attachment to it. Cause I saw it when I was very, very young, Me too. but I, but I know that Ken Wieter, the whole thing about Ken Wieter is that he's often on record talking about how he hates horror. And, He's not very proud of having done shockwaves in Return of the Living Dead too. He kind of trash talks them quite a bit. So it was, it was actually surprising to me to find out that he had also done this this 81 slasher film. And that makes me – and then finding out it has make effects by Tom Savini. Uh, yeah, I want to check this out too for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, ag- again, you know, films not having like a whatever uh, wide release. But but it, it was at least noted on the initial release date. It, Warner Brothers put it in 180 theaters, which isn't a huge release. But it was actually, you know... I'd, I'd say comparable to probably what a lot of slashers got mm-hmm. in the in the 80s. But, it, yeah, it, it did take some... Because uh, it's basically a rapist-murderer just stalking women. It, it did take some heat from what I was reading a little bit. But, yeah. So, let me go back to the horror-only list. So, all right. Yeah. April 10th. Now we're get And, again, call me the asshole Trev who always shits on the modern era and always hypes up, but no matter what, I gotta I gotta stand by that, you know, we've we've run through so many classics here and we're only to the end of uh you know, we only run through March here. I mean this this was a fucking great era. Mm-hmm. Like I don't man, I don't you know I don't know. Like like I don't I don't think there's any comparison, at least for the horror genre, you know, the quality, you know, or what was then, what was now. Yep. So April tenth, we got another Stone Cold classic coming up, uh The Howling mm-hmm. by Joe Dante.
2: Yeah. Um, a film you and I have done on this uh, mm-hmm. on this show. Uh, so you can, if you yeah. want to hear us really talk about this one, you can go back and listen to the the entire thing. But uh, you know, one of the one of the werewolf classics. What more What more can you say about it that we haven't already done an entire episode about? Uh, just a, an all around must see. Um, great practical werewolves, weird animated yeah. scenes, <laughs> but uh, yeah. you know, D. Wallace we, we- is great in it. So yeah.
1: Yeah, I gotta say when when we chose to cover it, um, and it, and when we did cover it, it was it was a, uh, you know, around that time that the Blu-ray came out, mm-hmm. so I was very familiar. Watched it a couple more times. But I have to say, you know, around that time that the Blu-ray came out and we covered it, I gotta say like this movie really, really grew on me. I always liked it. I always had good memories of it, but it really grew on me. Mm-hmm. So rolling on, uh, two weeks after that we had. April 24th. Now, this is a movie I've heard kind of like mocked a a little bit, Trev, but I've never seen it. So I I can't uh, really, you know, you know, vouch for it. No, it's better. Or maybe it's just as bad as people say. But I'm talking about the the movie The Hand. Mm Mm-hmm. Which was uh, the wasn't it the de- debut of Oliver Stone directing?
2: Yes, yeah. Um, yeah. And like, I'm with you in that I I don't I don't believe I've seen this. If I have, I certainly have no memories of it because it feels like something I probably came across on cable at some point back in the day. But uh, but like you, I've I've just always heard that it's it's not good. But then that makes me wonder like is it not good in the way that we would enjoy? You know? So right? Because right. um, I mean, Michael Caine in an Oliver Stone horror movie about a guy's hand. You know, yeah. coming to life and coming after him sounds like something I should watch.
1: Yeah, and he's just very quirky too because he yeah he's a comic book illustrator who loses his hand. Mm-hmm. So you know, kind of kind of uh, you know good cast too. Also uh, appearances by Charles Fleischer, Bruce McGill. So I mean. You know, we're 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 not talking about too much. It's it's not just like a low budget piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> like... Oh,
2: actually, sorry. Some, uh, second Oliver Stone uh, feature film as director, but first for a major studio.
1: Okay. Okay. And I see
2: good. that the the uh, hand effects were done by Carlo Rambaldi and Stan Winston. So you know, it oh, has nice. some
1: pedigree to it. For sure. Yeah. I might have to track down the hand somewhere, and then just let me double check. Let me let me pull some amateur hour. Okay, yeah, I had to see the poster to be sure. Also on that date was a uh, another movie called Night School. Uh, this is one I picked up on Blu-ray, uh, blind buy, uh, a couple years ago. I think it's out from, um, I believe the release I have is Warner Archive, but originally it was put out by Paramount. But anyway, yeah, I kind of like this. This is, um, I like I, it's hard for me to talk about it. Uh, without giving the whole thing away Mm -hmm. but it's kind of a quirky mystery uh, revolving around a kind of dubious college professor and his relationships with students and i gotta say like i just popped this in expecting like a really generic uh, slasher movie when i watched it about a year ago but it actually kind of i kind of would give this a, a, a strong recommend if you're looking for a you know, a, a unknown kind of out there slasher film. Cause it's, it's kind of fun in the twist and turns that it takes. Um, yeah. Have, have you ever seen? A no,
2: trip? I, but I, I do want to visit it because now you've just made that even, uh, you know, stronger for me because this is one again. I, so I brought up Brian Turek earlier. Uh, I listened to a podcast known as shockwaves. Some people might know, which is a, you know, popular horror film podcast. This is one that they actually brought up um, somewhat recently within like the last year, I think. I can't remember if it was, like, a new discovery for some of them, but uh, it might have been when the, the Blu-ray was released or something. But, yeah, they they watched it and said the kind of same thing, where they felt like it was kind of un, a little, um, you know, underrated and could could have a better reputation than it does. So I've been meaning to check it out.
1: I mean, it, it definitely, for I would recommend it for the fans. You know, they know the genre. They like the genre. Mm-hmm. They're looking for maybe the deep dives that, you know, they haven't, you know come up with yet. and that's the amazing
2: thing about the slasher genre right is that you feel like you're never done like it's incredible like so many were made in the 80s that here i am 2020 and I, there's still you know some 80s slashers out there that i need to see
1: <laughs> yeah is... yeah for sure and um yeah i mean just again rolling on with the uh the classics just popping out from non-stop i mean Obviously, nobody knew they were classics at the time, but yeah, May first we're coming in with Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you and I covered the first film. You know, for you know, it's always nice to do it when you have a Friday the Thirteenth popping up on the calendar. These these movies have have uh, been kind of done to death, Trev, but I hope you and me can reunite uh, further down the line when another Friday the Thirteenth strikes. Because I actually think Part Two is actually pretty interesting and worth talking about.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, to like Friday the 13th part two, um, you know, other than the hockey mask not being there, th- this is really where the series becomes the series people think of, obviously with, right. you know, um, you know, putting Jason in the, in the lead uh, antagonist role. And uh, it's just kind of a more, in a lot of ways, it's a more traditional slasher. One of the better final girls in this, the entire oh, slasher yeah, cycle too. Yeah. Um, yeah. So,
1: yeah, it's, uh, it's Amy Steele in this one, right? Yep. Yeah. 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 She's awesome. Yeah. And, and it's kind of weird because it's kind of like a cheat, but I kind of like it just because it's so weird. But the, like the during the third act, like most of the counselors or wherever they are, are like out at a bar, mm-hmm. a roadside bar. So they're so it's kind of like it's not even like Jason has to kill everybody. So it's it's like almost just believable that you know the 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 few people that are kind of trickling back into the camp are getting picked off or whatever. I don't know. I kind of have a soft spot for that one, and I think I think. Because this was like a big deal in the late '80s, early '90s with our local video store. My buddies were obsessed with renting these films. Pretty much every summer, we rented them in, in, in order. And I remember this was kind of like the first part in the series where we really kind of rewind it and watched it a kill. And that was when the guy in the uh, get in the wheelchair gets it, and then he rolls down the the steps and all that. Mm-hmm. I don't know why we like that. We thought that was so cool and brutal. Also, on this day was another kind of deep cut I would recommend. This was another uh I think Vinegar Syndrome put out a Blu-ray and I just picked it up blind bought uh, a couple years ago on the cheap and I really liked it. A Movie called Graduation Day. Um this is kind of like uh those ones I was talking about Trevor where it's kind of fun to see what people out of nowhere like will uh you know, or well, at least at least it felt like out of nowhere just, you know, scrape up some money and make it make a cheap uh cheap horror movie, you know. And uh, I really like this one because uh, the kind of the adult lead in it is uh, Christopher George. Ah, Pieces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you got to really go back to it. And I, and actually, I think I discovered this in Pieces around the same time. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's just kind of a fun, I need to go back and watch it. I, I actually, it was one of those things where I, I bought it, blind bought it, watched it. And then it was, the movie just was in my mind, and I think I watched it again about two months later, but I haven't watched it since. But uh, yeah, a, a early also early appearance, um, you know, from uh, Linnea Quigley too. So <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely worth checking it out for people who haven't seen it yet. Graduation Day.
2: Cool. Yeah, that's one I should. Uh, that's another slasher that I just haven't got around to. So I uh, I will do that at some point.
1: All right, man, that's such a good list. Man, blow, blown us away. Come, like literally hitting the same time in the theaters that Friday the 13th Part 2 was Yeah, that, shit this was up. crazy
2: to me to see that this came out the next week.
1: The next week The Burning, which is very similar uh, Summer Camp uh, Killing Spree, Cropsy. I love this movie. It, it kind of became a. I didn't see it until it got its DVD release. I rented it, it from that because I never saw it anywhere for rent on VHS, so I'm like probably like late 2000s probably like 06, 07, whenever that DVD came out and this is one of my favorite slasher movies of all time. Yeah,
2: this is one where for a long time this was like a go-to deep cut of horror fans, right? I'm sure you remember that where like uh-huh. it was always the oh you were into slashers oh you like Friday the Thirteenth but you don't know about the Burning. <laughs> so yeah. that but I think you plebe. <laughs> but I but I think over the last decade it's finally earned the reputation it deserves in a in a bigger way. Um, hopefully the Weinstein and all of it all won't uh, hurt that now, but. Uh, you know, because because it was actually a story by Harvey Weinstein. It was Bob Weinstein's first producing job. I think he wrote it too, right? Didn't Bob Weinstein write this?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, you can—they're all—they're all up in. You the, can look past the, all that. This
2: is this is one of the this is one of the high points of the slasher genre for sure. Yeah. Um, I think the only reason it's 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 not—I it, think the thing that always kept it from being a bigger deal as the slasher genre kept moving along was the fact that there were no sequels. I think if this had spawned right. a series, then obviously it would be a much bigger deal. But ultimately that works to its benefit because it is just kind of like it's a really cool standalone. Uh, oh man, the Rick Wakeman does the music, which is incredible. Yeah. It's such a good score. It,
1: it's, it's actually a really well-made movie. Yeah, I mean, it's... I, it, I, I, I kind of first, uh, believe it or not. I kind of first dis- found out, I would say discovered it cause I didn't get to see it, but I, I kind of like, first heard about it from Fangoria where they used to do it. remember Trev that skeletons in the closet little section mm-hmm. where, where they would tell you all about um like I never heard of the movie Clown House until they said uh, Sam Rockwell was in it and then I never heard about the Burning until they said Jason Alexander, Holly Hunter, Fisher Stevens and then the I'm blanking on his real name but the guy who played Mark Ratner in um Fast Times Original High was in it as well mm-hmm. but yeah the, the the Bernie was crazy just kind of how it I know it had problems with getting an X rating and blah 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 and all that kind of shit. It was one of those kind of controversial ones, but uh, yeah, um, I don't know. Like I'm glad this the, the, it finally got its due when the DVD, because it was out of print for a long time on VHS, so when the DVD came out, people were excited, and then maybe five years after that, the Blu-ray came out. So I'm glad the burning. Is yeah. I
2: mean, if, and if you're into effects, it's another, you know, if you're, you know, just trying to see everything Savini did. Um, the reason Savini was not on Friday 13th, for Friday 13th part two was because he went to work on the burning. And it's right. another one where he just really gets to show off. I mean, that, that raft attack is, oh, is yeah. just fantastic.
1: Yeah. I mean, like, I, I think I saw YouTube clips of the raft attack before I even got to see the movie. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So coming out about two weeks after The Burning and probably Friday the 13th, we're probably tearing up the box office. Probably more Friday the 13th, I'd say, was still dominating. Uh, there's a movie uh, on May 15th, the next week, that, that I didn't hear about this for a long time. It was like another one It, it I found out from Fangory in like the late 90s. They, after a while, they started doing those retrospective articles. And they did one about this movie called The Fan. And it, it's really interesting because... Um, it's a it's a slasher movie kind of obsessed whatever where uh young Michael Bean plays an obsessed fan of a uh, Lauren Bacall who's like a stage actress and also James Garner's in it as well. I really like this movie and I'm very I don't think it's quite out yet, but I'm very excited to hear, I it just got announced recently that it's coming out on Blu-ray. I can't wait to uh get it cuz it's really more of a psychological thing and it's it I don't mean this in like a uh, you know, mocking way or anything, but just a straight up true um Interest to me is it's it's really interesting seeing Michael Bean be all hot and like trying to get all over like uh, a you know uh, uh, I won't say elderly but 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 uh, you know you know an an older version of Lauren Bacall like I don't know to me it kind of. It rang a little more true with the psychology of it and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I, I think the performance, you know, Michael Bean's just good anyway. But it's cool seeing him even before the Terminator. You know,
2: yeah. No, I'm a I'm a bad person. This is another one I haven't seen, but uh, it's like I I definitely feel I need to because um, you just get so used to Michael Bean playing like one kind of part, right? And like I mean, I always think of him primarily as like the the heroic military guy. But then I think about how great he was in Tombstone, and you realize, oh yeah, if another chance to see him kind of get to lean into that more psychotic, you know, villainous side. And like I said, like, just the idea of, a, uh, you know, at this, like a lot of these slashers at the time of this time were so kind of like rinky-dinky, low-budget, bunch of nobodies. The fact that there's a slasher out there with Lauren Bacall and James Carner, I see Maureen Stapleton's in it, and Dana Delaney, a score by Pino DiNagio. Yeah, I should check this out for sure.
1: Yeah, it's, it's. I'll put it this way, it's definitely a B-movie in terms of its content. hmm but I I'd say it's borderline done with like a you know an an A movie resources like I th- I think it well, you know, that, shines through as being a pretty good
2: and again that was that was way more common back then right we just had more uh-huh. that's that's something we don't really get as much anymore is like that kind of a complete A level cast coming together to do a B movie.
1: Exactly. So yeah. So whenever the fan, um, I know there is a DVD of it. I, I've rented it. That's how I saw it. But I. But yeah. Whenever that Blu-ray comes out, I think it might. I think people... the
2: Scream Factory Blu is out. I think you should.
1: Oh, it did. It did just come out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll track it down then. Yep. I just did their outer print sale the other day. I bought a bunch of shit. Did if you... I would known it was on there, I probably would. Did you get a in uh,
2: bad influence?
1: Yes, you knew it. <laughs> <laughs> you knew it. And uh, unfortunately, I. I uh, well n- not not unfortunately but because but, I like it more than part two, but I actually picked up Poltergeist three, but unfortunately poltergeist Two was already gone, mm-hmm. and I've been checking it's already going for sixty bucks, so I'll have to settle for the bare bones of that but, yeah yeah Wait, which by the way, I was really surprised they did, the poltergeist movies went out of print within uh, I think I was looking at the release date a year and a half, mm-hmm. so yeah, hopefully that means somebody else will put them out soon but uh speaking of uh Polter, poltergeist three. Um, uh, May twenty ninth, and here's here's where I'm going to come up on the list. Travis being a piece of shit was uh I'd never seen the film Dead and Buried oh. that came out. Yeah, I, so yeah.
2: I, I love Dead and Buried. Um, yeah, oh, okay, yeah, this is I I have the I have a DVD of this special edition. Um, I probably should upgrade to blue just because it is a, a favorite of mine. But um, yeah, this is great. This is, so this is about this is a small town, small like um, coastal town where there's a sheriff who starts investigating why there's just a series of like brutal murders. In this town. In fact, um, a, a very young Robert England appears in this uh, as uh, one of the uh, one of the townspeople. But yeah, this, this townspeople just keep uh, murdering these people, and he's trying to figure out why. And to and to see, this is a hard way to talk about because it is a mystery. Um, and I'll just say like what ultimately seems like hmm, so it's just this just a story about crazy townspeople goes further than you think and goes into more uh, this is cross genre. That's all I'll say. You start to learn the more, you know, there might be some more supernatural elements to it than it might first appear. And I don't want to say too much about it, but, uh, yeah, Gary Sherman does a great job with this. It just has this really cool, eerie vibe to it. Um, it's just a really really effective film this is this is one where i look at and just think this still does not have the reputation it deserves I, I see it pop up you know on like various lists in particular it often gets highlighted in like underrated horror lists but i really wish this thing would get rediscovered in, in a bigger way even if that takes like someone doing a an inferior remake or something just to get people to go back to this one
1: <laughs> yeah to talk about it at least. yeah yeah because because like I I was always aware of this movie because I I'm assuming from the VHS covers or maybe from the disc being released, but but that that uh, poster is very iconic to me. It's mm-hmm. very familiar to me. And when I was looking it up the other day, I was like, "Damn!" The pedigree on this movie, directed by Gary Sherman, uh, screenplay by Ronald Shusett and Dan O'Bannon, yep. those are the guys who created Alien. Uh, like like you said, a, a supporting role by Robert England and also uh, it, apparently it got praise at the time from special effects from Stan Winston. Mm-hmm. So. There you go. Why am I such a shit heel? I got to see this movie. Yeah. So, let's see. Here's another one I'll have to click on because I get very confused. Some some of these movies fans, I hate to say it, they're they're very similar and I have to actually look at the posters. Okay. <laughs> so, coming up on June 5th was a uh, final exam, and I have to admit I've almost uh purchased this movie a few times as a blind buy, but I've never actually seen it.
2: Uh, it's it's pretty generic. Um, okay. it, this really, this to me is like kind of one of those, like, um, ultimate examples of just like a slasher you watch and go, yeah, okay. That was a slasher, you know, which, and there were, there were many of those as well. Right. Sometimes they're, cause I think this one's, you I think you can watch this one on Amazon streaming. And I think that's how I saw it, uh, for the first time, like a, a couple years ago. Um, but there's, like, ultimately, like, nothing that memorable I can talk to you about it. It's just, uh, it is what it is. It, it serves its purpose as an 80s slasher.
1: Yeah. I'll get around to it eventually. Yeah. July 24th. No, I I put this movie on the list, Trev, because I think a lot of people would put this as, try to classify this as, a like, a psychological thriller. Mm-hmm. But, it, but I, f- I feel like this movie has some good giallo elements. So I went ahead and threw on the list the, the release of uh, Blowout. Yeah. which. It's a it's a movie I really especially, you know, since the the Blu-ray came out, I picked up the Blu-ray. I always liked it. I've seen it on cable a few times. I believe ooh, I believe I caught this the first few times on either IFC or Sundance in the late 90s. Uh, you know, I I was a, I became a big uh John Travolta fan in the 90s obviously because of Pulp Fiction and whatever. So I really love this movie. I think it's great. Uh I think if uh, if you guys can track down a Blu-ray of it, uh I think it's visually. I think it comes across really well in high def. Um, so, also, kind of, kind of a big weekend uh, was also the release of another kind of semi cult film, Wolfen, mm-hmm. which uh, I think we talked a lot about this when we did the nineteen eighty one show. But yeah, it's it's without going too much in it into it because it's a very uh, complex uh, plot, very strange and bizarre plot. Um, I I say it definitely belongs in the um the horror genre because it is very supernatural.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, yeah, series like one of the series of you know, um, well, yeah, I guess you don't want to. Sp- well, the title's Wolfen, so whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. But you know, it's it's a. Uh... Of the of the trilogy of like werewolf films of this year, it's probably my least favorite, but yeah. um, but it is it's just goofy enough to be enjoyable. Uh, there's certain things about it I always remember, like the the wolf vision is kind of always something I like, yeah. I think back to. I mean, Albert Finney.
1: I, I think that's what I remember. Yeah, the most, the Albert wolf Finney vision. wearing a
2: headband the entire movie. I know he's like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, and work.
1: early early Whitley striber joint. What are you gonna say? Yeah. And by the way, I, I've kind of been corrected by people over the years because, in my mind, this was always a werewolf movie. But I've actually had some people call me out and be like, "No, it's not a werewolf movie." And I'm like, kind of. Uh, yeah. Are we splitting hairs yeah, here. And I, I get you what know? they're
2: saying, but ultimately, I think you can throw in that genre and not feel too bad about it.
1: <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So check out Wolf, and, and it's also um, very uh, long movie. Let me check. I just had the facts up real quick. It is, let's see, 114 minutes, which a little under two hours. You think, oh, that's not that long. But I actually heard that there was uh, originally, like, there was a lot of shit with the director in the studio because he actually wanted to put out a three and a half hour cut, <laughs> uh, which, yeah, which obviously, yeah, which obviously wasn't going to happen. But I, I thought that. So uh, coming out on August 7th, this is another one. Let me check the poster. OK, yeah. So, August 7th, this was a movie... I don't know how you're going to react to this, Trev, if you're more warm on this movie than I am, but Student Bodies, which was a parody slasher film. I watched this on cable. I forced myself through it about a year ago. And uh, this one just did not hit for me, either the uh, the comedy or just the, I don't know, production value. It, just, it seemed almost like... It was one of those ones, to me, felt really more... Not even like the cheap... Um, you know uh independent film but this felt like a literally a student film to me
2: i'm with you man uh i've seen this kind of gain more of a like a cult reputation over the years and i i don't get it uh, my first experience this was actually uh, i came in this pretty late too um in about 10 or a little bit more than that years ago i went to um, a horror convention in ohio with some friends and one of them bought like a uh i think at that point he had to buy like a bootleg of it he was just so excited he's like oh man a bootleg dvd of student bodies yeah. there was no real release yet and he's like talking to me about it on the drive back, which, you know, from just coming from Ohio is like, you know, an hour and a half drive or something. He's like all talking to stuff. He's like, you haven't seen Student Bodies. Oh, this is the original scary movie. It's so much better than scary movie. And then when I finally visited it, I was just like, Ugh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah, the humor just to me falls so flat in this. Um, I mean, it's cool that there's something pretty neat that already in 1981 someone was, was doing a parody of slashers that someone that they were that quick about it. Right. Um, But that's ultimately like the only kind of notable thing about it.
1: Well, to to really do a parody also, too, um, I feel like maybe this movie would have turned out better if they would have waited another year or two Mm -hmm. to where where the slasher genre would have really kind of, you know, kind of congealed and became what it became and, and there could have been like more identifiable or recognizable things that they could have poked fun at maybe it would have been better but like yeah it's just kind of like i don't know it's it's kind of just you know all over the place mm-hmm. to me when i watched it so yeah so going along august 14th this is a movie to me this is like pretty much the lost west craven to me but there was a movie came out august 14th deadly blessing And this kind of, like, I just don't know if this had a a shitty release or, like, what happened with it, Trev, but, like, I never knew about this movie at all until I saw some article about Wes Craven, I think probably in Fangoria, just mentioning this was, this movie really, the only thing that was famous about it even was that it kind of had an early supporting role from Sharon Stone.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I've never seen it, um... Now, I mean, I was, like I want to, for sure, just to kind of be able to check off that, like, oh, I've seen every Wes Craven film. Yeah. Um, see, it's also got Ernest Borgnine in it, which is kind of cool. Right. But, uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know much about it. That's a, It's another, like, poster I feel like I know well, um, certainly more than I know yeah. the, the movie. but it, uh,
1: it, it really does have a great poster. A little lurid with its cleavage, <laughs> but it is a cool poster. And I think it's,
2: like, also the you know, the fact that he has a film called, you know, there's Deadly Blessing and also Deadly Friend. I think it's just easy to right. kind of mix these up in your head, too, and be like, did I see that? or But, no, this is not one I've, I've checked out
1: yeah yeah and uh I, i've kind of heard, i've kind of not necessarily directly about this movie so i don't know for sure because obviously we know Wes craven had a lot of films in his in his career that kind of got messed up a lot of times either by studio reference or really just directly by the mpaa and i i kind of like um heard this movie being talked about I can't remember if it was from west directly or other people but like this was like one of his low period movies in terms of kind of this and hills High of eyes too where like He was kind of like running out of money, I guess, on a lot of these productions and was able to do what he really wanted to do. And like the releases were always shit. And like they just so it's like, you know, even though he kind of had gotten the notoriety way before for Last House on the Left, it was really like, you know, obviously Hills Have Eyes did pretty good, too. But uh, there was like a long period where he was really kind of floundering, yeah. um, until until uh, Night on Elm Street really brought him back up to the at least the studio level. You know, yeah, it's
2: funny because like one of those go to comments about Wes Craven is always like, "Oh, it's so amazing that there's no other filmmaker you can point to who had a who had a film that defined the genre in the '70s, '80s, and '90s, right?" And like that is really yeah. cool, but people forget that in between all of those, you know, moments where these other were these long periods where he was like just. I, you basically have to say just forced to do garbage because his career would like yeah. go cold like so quickly after each of those, which is too bad. It's too bad that he didn't ever have like a really long sustained run uh, up at top, you know, but yeah, but uh yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, his bad stuff is well, I can't say his bad stuff is all still interesting because some of it is kind of rough. But uh, but who knows yeah. what this one's like? I, I, I've sat through cursed and I've sat through my soul to take. I can probably deal with deadly blessing.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, for, for, I just got to give a quick shout out. Thank you to all the um, you know the movie graveyard fans out there. Uh, one of our most listened to episodes was uh, about a year ago. Uh, me and Mrs. Go covered uh, Deadly Friend, mm-hmm. and who knew? Who knew that there were so many the legions of the Deadly Friend fans out there, Trev? I would have never guessed it. So coming out after that was uh, August twenty first. We had Ding 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 da, Ding 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 Blue Moon. The classic, American Werewolf in London.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, what can we say about American Werewolf in London, Trev? What can we say about it?
2: Uh, not much. I mean, we got... Uh, awesome. Yeah, this is... Heck, hey, look, this is me. This was before John Landis uh, made Twilight Zone, so you can still feel okay about liking this one. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, I mean, in many people's minds, maybe not mine, maybe and that's a hint of things, but in many people's minds, the best <laughs> werewolf film uh ever made um but definitely definitely up there you know and uh, just one of the better examples of you know horror comedy is something that gets talked about a lot this is really one of the best examples of um of horror comedy where really the horror is at the forefront and the comedy is done just just right right where it's a very kind of i don't want to say subtle humor it's not even that subtle but it's it never is undercutting the horror um, mm-hmm. It's just it's kind of it's just acknowledging that things can be scary, but also we are humans who will make jokes. and it's just done really well. The, the Griffin Dunn character is great. I've always actually been we I don't know if you and I have talked about this before. I, the werewolf is a creature where a lot of the rules for it have been created in cinema over the years. You know, you look back to the original The Wolfman with Montue Jr. And that's where a lot of what we know of the Wolfman and werewolves comes from. And I've always been kind of bummed that more people didn't pick up on the mythology idea of werewolves being hunted by the ghosts of former victims.
0: Right, I, I think that's yeah. such
2: a cool idea. And I it's something that I'm uh, because you can just take ideas. You can't copyright ideas. Yeah. Uh, I'm surprised more people didn't run with that because it's certainly one of the cooler things this film created. But uh, but yeah, I'm not going to say too much more about it because everyone knows uh, this is a great one.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love it. Um, I think I think a lot of what I love about it more than anything, Trev, is actually on a kind of nuts and bolts filmmaking level, um, kind of just the special effects, the lighting, the cinematography, the editing, the kind of tongue-in-cheek approach to it. That's why the movie works so good to me. Mm-hmm. So we're rolling along the week after that. Here's another one that's a little bit like Blowout. It's a tweener. Um, you could just say it's really more just a, a standard suspense thriller, whatever, But actually, uh, since I did throw a blowout on, I wanted to also bring up Body Heat, which was a pretty, pretty notable movie. Uh, I like it a lot. I was another one I was late to. I just discovered a couple years ago, and uh, you know, it's it's really more a murder mystery, but there are some good kind of tension, stalking, whatever scenes. Some some red herrings. Um, But yeah, I really like uh, really like William Hurt in this movie. Mm -hmm. Cool, uh, obviously. I'm blanking Kathleen Turner is graded into mm-hmm. kind of her star making role and nice early appearance from Mickey Rourke as well. So I would throw body heat in there for those people who, uh, it's, it's definitely not, um, you know, on the fake Hitchcock level that De Palma goes to, but I think it, 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 for the eighties, you know, throwing back to that those classic movies, it's also like a little bit of a hardboiled detective thing, even though it really is a lawyer kind of figuring it all out. And, uh, also notable that uh, I think this is the first movie directed by Lawrence Kasdan as well. So, <laughs> yeah, it's worth checking out. Mm-hmm. Also, more legit horror again with the well, I don't know, maybe if you would call this a slasher or not, Trev. Uh, but a Hell Night came out also that weekend. Yeah,
2: this is like that one of those like middle ground ones, right? Where it has the f- structure and form of a slasher, but it's something, yeah. Um, it's another one where it's just like it's it just is a slasher, right? Like it's uh, yeah. it's I, I, what I'm trying to say is I just recently saw this for the first time last October. Actually, this is one of my uh, my nice. Halloween month viewings. And uh, I was not too impressed by it. I mean,
1: yeah, I wasn't either when I seen it. It's it like, I like
2: Linda you know. Blair. I always enjoy watching Linda Blair. Um, and it's kind of there's something kind of cool about them all, you know, being in this like gothic costume dressed in old cost yeah. old, you know, timey outfits but it's still being modern like that's a good conceit right the idea of them you know it's they're they're doing like a pledge night and that's why they're in the castle and that's why they're dressed the way they are but it's still ultimately like they're 80s kids you know but uh i don't know the whole like backstory of the killer in this is like i don't want to say confusing but just dumb (laughs) and like i just i couldn't get into it and like i didn't even i didn't find the kills that interesting it's it's just another like oh okay that's a slasher yep i saw it
1: yeah, yeah. This was one me and my buddies, whatever, late 80s, early 90s, uh, came across. So I came to it, you know. It, it wasn't one that had nostalgic memories over. Yeah. Um, This next one, okay, okay, fans, like, <laughs> you were probably burnt out, you know, going to the theater every week, every two weeks. So you did actually get a break in between August 28th and September 25th. So this is a movie that I heard about for a long time, and finally I was lucky enough... To find a VHS copy of it in the I wanna say the early two thousands. I'm talking about um the kind of cult classic movie called The Boogans. Mm. Are you familiar with this movie, Trevor? Yeah, I've seen the Boogans. Yeah, it's kind of a fun little movie. Um kind of pre- well, I guess there's always been tiny monsters, whatever, but this is kind of predating the, you know, Gremlins Critters era of um been a while since I've seen it, but it's some people kind of like you know, out in the house in the middle of nowhere. And then like, there's some, like if I'm remembering right, there's like a local mine where some small uh, creatures are at. Uh, and those are the titular boogans <laughs> and they attack in uh, a little bit of hokiness, a mm-hmm. little bit of whatever, but, but I liked it. I thought the boogans was pretty good. It's
2: a film that like, and this is always tough. Cause like, I feel like this is not always the case with, um with 80s films. I don't want to say it's like, it's a made it's, I don't want to say the entire film is tongue in cheek, but you do get the sense watching it that the filmmakers knew it was goofy. And didn't like hide from that fact. And I think that's ultimately okay. what makes it fun. And I do think the right way to watch it is if you are ever doing like a week or a weekend of programming your own little um, oh, I'm going to watch gremlins, ghoulies, critters, boogans like that's where, you know, just just throw in that bunch because it's uh, like I said, it's a fun little little monster movie, you know
1: yeah i would probably put it i mean it's definitely several notches down from gremlins yeah maybe one and a half notches down from critters but i'm gonna go out on a limb trap i'm gonna say this for me personally this movie is about two and a half notches above ghoulies well no i'm with
2: you i'm I'm no i'm no ghoulies man myself either so okay yeah,
1: yeah that was another uh i i have an interesting ghoulies theatrical experience but we'll save that when we get there um and then, yeah, fans, you, you had to uh, wait a little while longer uh, for another week or so. We had the release of Galaxy of Terror. Um, looks like I messed up on the date. I just had that as October 1981. Or maybe maybe that's just what the list said. Um, let me double check. Blah, blah, blah.
2: October 23rd, I think. It's...
1: Okay. Okay, I got out of order then for some reason when I was copying and pasting my list. But, yeah, Galaxy of Terror came out. And this is another one I wasn't... Um, aware of really at all until um uh somebody gifted me the blu-ray of it and mm-hmm. watched it i thought it was pretty awesome yeah um are you on board with this one, oh track? yeah yeah
2: this is one where uh, yeah i think you know in the last as you said like in the last 20 or so years there's been a big you know resurgence in roger corman and just revisiting that whole era of like his brand of you know cheap b-movies and this is this is definitely one of the more <laughs> exploitative, uh, yeah. just c- kind of, you know, gross, but in the right way kind of ones. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's really fun. If you aren't too much of a sensitive snowflake nowadays, you can you can take some of that. <laughs> yeah,
1: don't be a snowflake. <laughs> Enjoy this rape.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but, uh, but no, as yeah, finally the, the effects are, you know, just the just the right level of, uh, you know, not great, but man, pretty entertaining. And uh, yeah. yeah, I enjoy it. It's a, it's a, it's a good, you know, you get Sid Haig in there. And again, Robert England, uh, it's a fun one.
1: Yeah. This was the movie um, going back all the way to the eighties. The only thing I really knew about this as a kid, Trev was, was this was the, the movie that was always used as an example of like the kind of like schlocky movies that Robert England was doing before he did V and nightmare on Elm street. Mm-hmm. But that's all I really knew about it growing up. So, Skipping around since I got the dates mixed up. October 9th then saw the uh, release of Full Moon High, which is a movie I've only seen... P- it's actually more of a horror comedy, but it's actually still around. A- it's actually playing on cable right now. I forget what movie channel's been running it lately a lot. But uh, I might I might give it a watch. I've only seen bits and pieces of it, but this is like another wacky one. Um, I believe this is... Well, maybe not the debut, but like the kind of first major role from... Uh, um, who is it? Adam Arkin. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to say Alan Arkin, but that's the dad. But, but I, but the reason I said, I, I was thinking about kind of actually sitting down and watching this for real is Trev. This is actually a, uh, Larry Cohen joint. Yeah. Yeah. Written,
2: I uh, wrote and directed it, right?
1: Written, directed, produced. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I, I, uh, it's, it's an odd like blank spot for me as well. Um, as so much as I love Cohen, I have not ever sat down to, uh, and then like you, I, I've seen it available like recently. um, and it's it's certainly probably in some watch list I have somewhere, but uh, I haven't got around to it yet.
1: Yeah. So October fourteenth. I think. Was oh, sorry. Another... I think
2: in my head for some yeah. reason I I feel like it's a film that it's not even the same year, but I think like it, in my head I was always getting it confused with Saturday the fourteenth because it seems like right, it has like yeah. that kind of vibe to it, right?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, actually, I actually remember my mom taking me to see Saturday the fourteenth on like literally a Saturday afternoon, but um. But yeah, from what I remember about both movies, because um, I actually was just watching a little bit of Full Moon High about a week, maybe two weeks ago. Yeah, it, 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 I think you're right on the, the right track there, Trev. Mm-hmm. October 14th, again, fans, um, I'm more visual than anything. Let me take a look at this poster. Yep, yep, yep. So we had the release of Just Before Dawn. Uh, this is another slasher movie. Um it it has come out on disc recently, but I first saw it on, like, uh what do you call it, like a DVD bootleg that was ripped off of VHS maybe uh, 10, 12 years ago. Uh, starring uh, George Kennedy, Chris Lemon, Greg Henry. And I kind of like this one, Trev, because it's like they go out in this hot shit RV and they kind of get stuck in the middle of nowhere where, like, just kind of like a crazed hillbilly with a machete is going around. Maybe more on the generic side of slasher movies, but it's still pretty enjoyable from what I remember about it.
2: Yeah, I don't know if I've seen it. So this, this, we are getting to this territory now where some of these, you even look at the poster and it's hard to know if it's like, hmm, have I seen that? And especially because, man, that poster, like the silhouette of the killer, looks exactly like the Madman poster.
1: Oh, um, yeah, it's exactly. And the character <laughs> itself is very similar. Yeah, so
2: in my head, I'm just probably thinking like, no, I think I'm thinking of Madman. And I've probably never seen this one. Okay. I see it's directed by uh Jeff Lieberman though, who, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um so did Squirm and uh Blue Sunshine which I love. So
1: Yeah, it it's got some charm to it. Um I I'm, I'm just really more into the the cast really cuz uh, I always get this guys I get people's names mixed up who um kind of have first and last names that are both first names, but Greg Henry. Oh yeah. yeah. I don't know why. I don't know why I like Greg Henry.
2: Yeah. Greg <laughs> Henry the the, the, uh, the MVP of Slither
1: oh yeah well big time big time so then coming out after that we had the and i i gotta um i gotta uh you know claim ignorance on this even though it's it's kind of a cult classic we had the movie nightmare which by the way if people don't know it's also known as nightmares in a damaged brain which i've always known it by that title i never knew it was called nightmare a 1981 American slasher movie directed by Romano Scavolini. Have you seen this one, Trav?
2: Yeah, but uh, not recently enough to speak to it very much. Um, this yeah. is one, though, I remember my memories being good, though. I remember, like, enjoying it when I saw it, so.
1: Nice. Yeah, it's, it's one of those movies of, uh, you know, the Nightmare and Damaged Brain title. Uh, I, I I know a lot, but I just don't know shit about the movie. Yeah. And it's it's just
2: about, it's like a guy who like gets, you know, this is another, this is another like New York film. So that's probably, that's a big part of like what I liked about it. Um, Or at least it's, it's some of it is in New York, but it's just a guy like escapes from like, um, you know, an insane asylum and kind of just goes on a killing spree. But uh, there's, there's not much, there's not much to it, but for whatever reason I enjoyed the time, take that for what it's worth. I don't remember very much of it. So maybe I, I don't know. I could have just been bored. And I was like, this is fun, but uh, I remember it being pretty enjoyable.
1: Yeah, so we have another uh, parentheses movie here as being a can uh canadian movie which i'm not sure exactly if that means it only came out in canada or if it's whatever but it's kind of interesting because this film was actually a canadian production canadian filmmakers but they actually filmed it in america and wisconsin and i'm not sure if you're familiar with this movie trev i only know it from the posters very familiar to me but not the movie there's a little movie called the pit in the poster i've seen a lot it's this it's a drawing of a little boy uh holding a teddy bear and then there's like like, literally, a pit of like looks like somebody falling in there with their hands like creeping out. Have you ever seen this film, dude?
2: You you have to see this movie. It this, okay. this <laughs> movie is nuts. Um, so th- okay. this is a movie that was brought to my attention in the last couple of years as well by Shockwaves, who they just got obsessed with it. And uh, so then I, I checked it out, and uh, this is one of my favorite like recent discoveries. Um, it is it's just a bonkers movie. So, like, the kid. He's this like uh, bullied kid who has the the teddy bear. It's like it's named Teddy. He talks to it. You get do you you actually hear the teddy bear's voice? So they have these kind of conversations. Oh
0: wow! And then he (laughs) he discovers
2: this pit in in the woods by his house that these monsters live in, and he starts trying to um, basically lure people to this pit and push them in. And so it's like not only it's like talk about a hat on a hat, right? It's uh, it's a movie about a kid with a teddy bear talks to him, but also these strange like goblin like monsters in a pit that he's feeding um, people to um, and it's just it's so weird but so good uh, I mean when I say good people hopefully know what I mean um, it's just such a strange film that that's why it's enjoyable
1: okay yeah it, it actually sounds right up my alley actually just reading a little synopsis so let's see so a week later we had some more big time releases uh, this first one I wasn't sure whether to um uh, included, Trev, but it's it's listed as a science fiction thriller horror film. So I was like, whatever, I'll throw it on. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, it's a movie called Looker. And I find it interesting because it's written and directed by Michael Critton. Uh, how do you say his name? Michael Critton. Michael Critton. Yeah, yeah Michael Critton, starring Albert Finney, Susan Day, and Joe James Cobra. So this seems like a, pretty much like an A list production, at least it seems like to me, put out by Warner Brothers. And it's, uh, it, I don't know, like, I don't know if it's really horror or not, but it's it's basically about a uh, Beverly Hills plastic surgeon who it seems like the girls that he he's working on they end up dead later so there's some kind of mystery uh are you familiar with Looker at all
2: no you know I I just recently thought about this like from someone like tweeting about it and tweeting the poster and then seeing like you know that Michael The Crichton. poster's great yeah, yeah and then seeing that Michael Crichton directed it and seeing that Albert Finney's in it but I yeah, you know, I've not seen it uh, I mean I'm interested to check it out because actually um I think Crichton is like an underrated director people forget that you know, People think yeah. of him primarily as a novelist, but uh, you know, he directed Westworld. He directed um, yeah. Coma, whichever they like, uh, The Great Train Robbery. So he did some really good stuff, and so that makes me feel like I, sh- I should get around to this one, too.
1: Yeah, so also on the same day, October 30th, makes sense, coming out a day before Halloween. And I'm kind of actually surprised this movie didn't come out the week before, because there wasn't much going October 23rd, Nightmare of the Pit, whatever. But I'm surprised they waited all the way to October 30th to release Halloween 2, Trev. Yeah,
2: that's almost like they just assumed what you would do now, right? Just be like, well, everyone who's going to see this is going to see it this weekend. <laughs> so yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, uh, but you, you think you think? I always think with 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 the movies that are tied with a specific holiday, you want to do the weekend before because it's that big rush of people that are excited just to see the actual movie, mm-hmm. and then that way you can strengthen the second weekend where people are like celebrating the actual holiday. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so yes, yeah, so, I mean, just think about these slashers. I mean, is it's, like, I mean, this we are covering all horror here, Trev, But I mean, just think about the same year you had My Bloody Valentine, Maniac, The Fun House, um, Friday Thirteenth Part Two, The Burning, mm-hmm. um, Halloween Two. I mean, that is a no pun intended murderer's row of slasher movies. Yeah,
2: we still got one more. We'll talk about in a second, but uh... yeah. But uh Halloween two, you have anything to say about it you've never said before? I mean,
1: I mean, not really. I'm in a really, really weird place with Halloween two, Trev. Uh, it was actually like one of the very first movies I think me and Corey ever uh did on here. Um I'm in a weird place because I don't like sequels generally that retcon or like fuck with the ending of a previous movie, and I kind of feel like Halloween two does that in the way that I put it this way, I love the original Halloween ending where they shoot him, he falls down, and then a second later he's whatever. Because I like in my mind thinking, like, is he really. Because their feeling, or at least Jamie Lee's feeling, is like he really is the boogeyman, he's unstoppable, whatever. And it's like, I like that mystery of, like, did he just get up and walk, like, a few feet and die somewhere else? Mm -hmm. Or is he really invincible and you don't really know? Whereas this film answers the question because we pick up right away with him. Like, we get to see... And it's actually the part of the movie I like, so don't get me wrong. I'm not shitting on it, but story wise, it's like you just see him going through back alleys, and like you realize, oh yeah, this guy can get shot five, six times and be fine. You know what I
2: mean? Yeah, I mean when I was when I was younger, that was actually the 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 giant appeal of Halloween two to me was always that I thought it was so fascinating that there was a sequel that picks up immediately when the other one ends, because um, that wasn't something you saw. We we've seen that happen um with other series more recently but I, I don't know if that's if this is like the first sequel that ever did that um if anyone has another Ooh. idea come yeah I don't come know. but I, I just thought that was so cool like i remember talking to people like oh didn't you know that like, halloween 2 takes place the same night that's so neat you know um yeah. i'm also an interesting place to in halloween 2 because it's in general like the halloween franchise is pretty up and down for me in a way that other series aren't i always think of like i always say that like Halloween is a franchise in terms of that slasher pantheon to me. is like it's clearly got the best first movie of any of them, but then it's like the most inconsistent series. Like, you know, there's no Friday the 13th movie that's as good as Halloween, but the series is just so much more dependable. And But that said, like Halloween 2 is one of the sequels I like, but it's also like the moment where everything goes wrong, right? Like it's a good slasher film, but what it does with Michael and Laurie – Ended up putting the series on like this terrible yeah. trajectory that it took a super long time to recover from. Um, and even now, to the point where now when they have to yeah. like retcon it, it, just, it still feels kind of sloppy, right? Yeah,
0: and also, yeah, yeah, I, I, and also,
2: yeah. like knowing that it, if they had made Halloween 3 first, we probably would have got what Halloween as a series really should have been, which is just a bunch right. of different stories set on Halloween. So.
1: Yeah, obviously that Halloween 3 debate, you know, I always find it's a lazy debate to be like, oh, we should have just done more Michael Myers or whatever. And it's like, yeah, I agree with you. If they would have done Halloween 3 right after Halloween, mm-hmm. it, it I'm not saying the movie would have been a hit and the series would have blah, blah, blah. But I, I think you could have had more leverage later on because... Halloween, and again, like I'm, I'm a person who I own every Halloween movie on DVD. I own every Halloween movie on Blu-ray. Again, I bought them all a second time. So, take take my criticism with a grain of salt, but. I feel like Michael Myers becomes less interesting, like the less I don't know how to, way to phrase this, either the less believable or maybe the less mysterious he is, if that makes sense. Yeah, to yeah,
2: it. no, I agree. And I always think, like, imagine a world where this is the way I think they could have done it or should have done it. Imagine a world where like Halloween two and Halloween three were both individual stories that had nothing to do with Michael Myers. But then Halloween four was a Michael Myers one. Then you get All like right. five and six that are something different. Then he comes back for seven, you know, and it's just like that might right. have been neat. But yeah. um, because they did two right away with him, that's what people thought the franchise was. Right. Um, everyone knows the story by now. Carpenter was just drunk and came up with the sibling reveal. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's like I said, like I said, it's a it's a good slasher. Like it it, it operates. It's got a it's got a good engine under the hood. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. But yeah, ultimately, I don't know. It 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 kind of wrecked the franchise in a way. But that said, I still like it. So,
1: I I, I agree. Like when I said, I'm in a weird place. So the I I like it more on a visual level. It's it's still even though carpenter didn't direct it he did do some pickup shots mm-hmm. which ironically the pickup shots are kind of my favorite parts of the movie <laughs> but uh yeah it's got some great imagery and i love it when he's stumbling around the alleyways i love the scene you know that scene where the kids walking with the with the boombox and the camera's kind of going back and forth of like different people walking and talking and then we see michael it, It's it's got and i love it when michael invades the um the hospital and he's burst through the glass Again, it's it's got, it's got some great uh, visuals to it. I don't know if the kills are really anything special to me. Yeah, I mean the yeah. the
2: one where he lifts the nurse from behind is pretty cool. Yeah, like, but yeah, yeah, it is.
1: yeah, but yeah. So yeah, I, I like it when he when, when he leaves the blood behind on the ham sandwich. That was a good <laughs> one. <laughs> but anyway, enough Halloween too. I'm going to lose some credit big time on this one, Trev. A week after that, we had The Prowler, a movie very famous for, I believe, right, Tom Savini special effects. Mm -hmm. Pitchfork in a stomach in a shower, big time. That's how I always knew this movie before I saw it, was just the special effects. So I've seen a lot of the great special effects in documentaries before. But I have to admit, when I sat down to actually watch The Prowler, uh, I think it was one of the early movies back in the early days of uh, uh, Netflix streaming, I couldn't get through it, man, and it it got to the point where I basically just gave up and just fast forward and watched the kills.
2: Um, so, so if you lose credit, Goat, I'm right there with you because uh, I I don't like the Prowler either, and I the only way I've ever finished the Prowler is watching it as a as a Joe Bob episode where you have him coming yeah. in every 20 minutes to talk about it, and obviously there is some interesting stuff behind the scenes with Savini working on it and being directed by Joseph Zito, but um, you're right, man. It's 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 other than those kind of classic. You know, again, we got a good head explosion in this. This eighty one was really the year of head explosions, man. Oh, but, time, uh, yeah. but yeah, I mean, but between that and the pitchfork, this is a slog, man. I mean, it's just yeah. it's it's a very boring film, and also like one of the one of the dumber like eventual reveals of the killer, <laughs> like it doesn't it's that <laughs> it's not a great payoff. Um,
1: so yeah. yeah. So yeah. So. Now, unfortunately, we're winding down. You know the kind of the the hoopla of the, you know, the Halloween season. Things finally did uh, kind of reach you know the end of the line here. So uh, November, uh, you know, after the release of the Power, um, was pretty empty. Uh, December 11th, we have a film. I know nothing about Trev other than just looking it up. Uh, Dawn of the Mummy, listed as an Italian American horror film directed by Frank Agre- uh, Agrema. Uh, not, not familiar with this at all. It just, appears to be a legit, um, you know, mummy movie, uh, you know, going back and explaining the mummy and then the mummy showing up in modern day and killing people from what I can tell.
2: Yeah. I've never seen it. Something tells me if it's like an Italian horror film of this era, it's probably pretty bad, but also I would probably watch it and get some entertainment out of it. (laughs) Yeah.
1: yeah. So yeah, Dawn of the Mummy, man, hopefully some of you, uh, you know you uh, graveyard uh, listeners have heard of it unfortunately we got to plead the fifth on this one and then one last horror film um of the year i don't think it's considered like a big deal but to me personally it was a big deal uh fangoria had me hyped on this movie trip Mm -hmm. and when i went to see it i was not disappointed and this is another one, too, where I am shocked that this movie came out in 1981. I would have sworn it was a 82, 83, 84 movie. Because for some weird reason, I have the most vivid memories of seeing Ghost Story in the theater. Like, the build-up to it, seeing it. And I don't know how that's possible, because I was literally four and a half years old when this movie came out <laughs> on December 18th. So, the thing I really was, like, jazzed up about Ghost Story was they showed the lady skeleton in frangoria mm-hmm. and i don't know why but that image and that prop and that effect uh yeah it really worked on me and i was somebody even at a young age i very rarely got frightened at movies um you know seeing a lot of them you know early on and this one it was more or less i don't know i guess it's, this is just another atmosphere movie for me trev um i guess i gotta bring up you know it it has all these classic actors in it fred astaire uh, douglas fairbanks jr john houseman uh craig watson plays the son of one of the characters alice krieg it's it it literally is a ghost story about these these old guys who get together and it turns out that they're hiding a, a a way secret from the past of this girl that they that they let die and now she's you know I don't want I don't want to ruin too much for people who maybe haven't seen it yet but this this ghost comes back to haunt um them and their, some of their sons and it's, I think it's done in a pretty interesting way. Like, are you familiar with ghost story trip?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I, so I came to it fairly late. Um, cause I'd always heard that it wasn't very well received. Um,
1: yeah, I always heard that too.
2: And I always heard that it wasn't like anything worth seeing. And, uh, I can't say that I have the emotional attachment you have to it. Um, yeah. nor would I say I'm as big of a fan as it sounds like you are, but I remember watching it and maybe it was the low expectations, but thinking that's a pretty solid, like, you know, just supernatural, you know ghost film of that era and finding you know it's it's pretty fun to see fred astaire um in a in a ghost movie um and yeah, i I, cool. I always i i like craig wasson as like a screen presence and oh yeah so, I, love,
1: I love craig
0: wasson yeah
2: um so no, i i enjoyed it i think it's worth checking out if you're into just kind of um ghost films in general haven't seen this one yet
1: yeah, I definitely need to pop in my Blu-ray because I've seen this movie. Several, I probably you know besides watching pieces of it or whatever, I have probably seen it in full maybe three times over the years, but it's been a long time and the Blu-ray came out a couple years ago. I snatched it up right away and for some reason I haven't watched it, but I soon it, it's 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 weird and I don't mean to just spin bullshit here because we're doing this episode but just recently like maybe two weeks ago I was like I really need to watch Ghost Story Yeah, <laughs> I think maybe because it was on or whatever I was like I got that Blu-ray I need to watch it it's
2: kind of cool too I like the I mean I actually like the idea of um, it being released around Christmas like it is kind of a neat yeah. like Christmas time you know like a wintery yeah. like ghost think like, like people forget like one of the most famous Christmas stories of all time is a, is a ghost story right with a Christmas carol right. and I always think of like people forget that Christmas should also be a time of like supernatural kind of stuff Um so
1: yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, to me, even back then, I think you can do counter programming at Christmas time a little bit more now, maybe. But I, I, looking back, I think it was pretty ballsy to release Ghost Story on December 18th. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like I actually did read that the reason they wanted it to be a Christmas release uh, in particular, I believe it was Universal as a studio from what I was reading, they said they wanted to uh, capitalize on the wintry setting of the film and of, you know, the time of year or whatever. I like I don't know. I I think studios don't really like think of that kind of thing anymore, to be real honest with you. Mm -hmm. But I thought that was kind of a cool footnote for that movie. So Trev, man, I really I really thought we were gonna blow through this in like seventy five minutes just looking at a list of movies and not much. But I was you know, there a lot of these movies we had more memories about than I thought we would. Uh, but we have come to the conclusion of all the great horror movies and horror boom of uh, 1981, mm-hmm. and now we will do our top three. And then you said, top three or top five? And I said, let's do a top three to make it hard. And boy, was this hard for
2: me. Yeah, this, is, this was rough. Very rough. Um, before we get into the top three, let me just give one quick shout-out to a film, because we, we we talked about how um, release dates are kind of iffy around this time. Yeah. And we, yeah. we mentioned how Zombie 2 we weren't too sure about. Well, to keep on that Fulci train, a film that was released in most European markets in 81 but then didn't come out to the US until 83 but I still want to give it a shout out is uh the Beyond which to me is Fulci's masterpiece um so I just wanted to shout that out saying like again if you're talking about 81 is like a a horror year and you're not just focused on America then the Beyond should be in that conversation as well but uh but I left that and Zombie 2 off of my top three since uh I didn't know whether that would be fair
1: (laughs) yeah uh just thankfully uh Zom zombie was in the conversation maybe for me, but yeah. it it didn't make it. Cut. It
2: was if if the Beyond was like definitely like an eighty one in America, the Beyond would would be probably my number one because I I do love that film. But uh, yeah. I had to go a different route. So do you do you want to each do our three and then what do you how do you want?
1: Yeah 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 let's do it that way. Uh j- just just to keep it all coherent, I'm going to do my number three first, Trev. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, I've seen this movie a couple times. Um have not watched it recently so maybe maybe i'm kind of you know pulling a a jerk move here by pulling out a movie i haven't watched in several years but like like i was saying i have a very very strong emotional or nostalgic attachment i should say of of remembering this movie and loving it when it came out uh yeah fond memories i gotta go number three with ghost story actually Trev.
2: cool Hopefully, that'll convince some listeners to go check it out because I I, I I mean, I, I agree so. with you. I think it's I don't know that it deserves the reputation I've seen it have. I think it's it's yeah. certainly worth a watch. so all right, well, uh, keeping on the train of making you feel bad, my number three is your one of your black your blank spots. My number three is dead and buried. Uh, same oh. same idea. I mean, I just think, man, I think this is underappreciated and it needs like even more of a resurgence than than I've seen it slightly have. Um, just a really cool, like, um, you know, unique, again, I don't want to say too much about it because I don't want to, I don't want to give away what genre it ultimately falls into, but just some just a cool, like slow burn with some really cool effects and just a really creepy feeling.'m I'm, I'm really into any horror films, go back to it. Um, but yeah, this is a film I, I really wish people would uh, kind of rediscover. I think, like I said, I don't want to ultimately say what genre it falls into because I don't want to give away too much, but it's just a really cool, slow burn film. and I'm I don't know about you Goat, but I'm really into any movies about creepy towns. Oh yeah. when you're like about. when you're in a town where everyone seems off i always find that really scary and this this film is a great example of it so gary sherman's dead and buried go check it out people
1: yeah i have to admit i'm kind of on a uh, gary sherman uh, kick right now uh I, i've watched uh, for when i was preparing for that poltergeist episode i i watched a, a weird documentary hosted by aj benza of all people on uh, youtube and uh there was a lot of you know kind of more recent interviews with gary sherman and i just kind, kind of, of dig the dude and i I like Poltergeist Three, and I got that movie coming in the mail, so it's got me curious to check out the guys' other work and then, like I said, just looking at the rest of the people there and I'm like, holy shit like i've I've known this movie for a while, it has been on my radar and it and like I said, like you know it's kind of a shame not watch, so I gotta rectify that pretty damn soon mm-hmm. so yeah, so moving on to my number two, and again, um. I kind of foreshadowed this during our recording, but this is a movie, my appreciation for it really grew, because I was always familiar with it, and I actually saw it many times on cable throughout the years, and I don't know, maybe because I had seen it a bunch of times, I kind of, like, its effect had gotten dull on me, but I'm going to go number two. I really dig, you know, the last few years, I've really been into The Howling, Trev. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, one of my favorite parts of it is actually the opening scene uh, of, uh, I'm blanking on the guy's name, Robert, uh, what's the guy's name, Robert Picardo? Is that Picardo, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the scene where he's creeping uh, D. Wallace in the porno place. I love yeah. that scene. Yeah. And, damn it, man, those those stop, even though they're in the movie for two seconds, those stop motion werewolves have grown on me, and just the overall uh werewolf design has really grown on me and i think i think i appreciate i used to be a little bored when i was younger of the scene where they're like they're at the colony and all that kind of stuff but kind of like you said going to appreciating movies where towns or places and everybody's a little bit off i, I i'm kind of more into the howling now as an older person
2: yeah no, it was it was really fun to kind of sit down and do that movie too before and uh and if not for The Howling, we wouldn't have The Howling 2 and 3, which are also a lot of fun, even if they're not on the same quality level. <laughs>
1: I was <laughs> so. just going to say, dude, I was uh, look, you know, digging a movie out of the shelves and I see my Howling 2 sitting there and I'm kind of like, I think it's kind of a missed opportunity if me and Trev don't get to this at some point.
2: Oh, I, I would definitely do The Howling 2.
1: Yeah.
2: All right, my number two is uh, I, I wanted to have some slasher representation on here. So I kind of sat down and thought about where to go. And this is a tough one because I I want I was it was between I was starting to think, should I throw the burning on here? And then ultimately I decided, even though I think the burning is maybe a better film than this, I ultimately put my number two as Friday the 13th Part 2.
0: Um,
2: because I do think this is one of the better Friday the 13th films. Um, I think it's a vastly superior film to the original Friday the 13th. Um, as we said, Amy Steele is just one of the one of the ultimate final girls. Uh, that entire like last, you know, 10 or so minutes with like the, you know, the cat and mouse game of them is just really well done. I actually really like Sackhead Jason. I think it's a cool look. I do so. Um, yeah, it's just it's it's a uh, it's a it's a high point in the slasher genre. Like I said, I think technically The Burning might be a better film, but I, Friday the 13th is my favorite horror franchise. And so I'm going to ultimately defer to one of its better entries here.
1: Yeah, I don't know what it is, too, because I, I mean, maybe, maybe not. I don't uh, see what your opinion of this, Trev. But um, the uh, compared to when you're a kid and now that you're an adult and you watch Friday, Thursday, Thing part two, I don't know why. Just being older, like the hotness factor of Amy Steele goes way up when you're older. Yeah. I think you appreciate her way more. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So, yeah. So to my number one. I have to say, you know, I had to go with the nostalgia pick of the, just the long history of me loving uh, Ghost Story at number three. I really thought, like you said, like, I really thought The Burning was going to make it onto my list at either two or three. I kind of did feel bad about, you know, not like when I, how we were saying, damn, man, like five classic slashers coming out in a year and none of the slashers made my list, unfortunately, Trev. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think it's, uh, pretty obvious pick for a lot of people I can't help it I'm in love with it my list is crazy Uh, my list is well my list is not crazy my list is unbalanced for 1981 number one I'm going with the other werewolf movie American Werewolf in London okay like I said it's just like I said before what can you say about it but for me it's just a great kind of horror comic book pop art whatever craziness come to life I really appreciate American Werewolf in London
2: cool well i kind of hinted at this earlier on but um our only repeat here my number one is i this is a long-standing debate i'm finally ready to publicly declare uh, get press releases ready that ultimately um when it comes to werewolf films my number one pick for 81 is the howling i i like the howling more than american werewolf in london um american werewolf london would probably be my four or five don't worry people <laughs> but uh, but ultimately, I, I just yeah I've fallen more and more in love with the Howling over the years, and to me, it's actually my favorite werewolf film. Um, I loved it. like part of it maybe was doing that commentary and kind of rediscovering it for that. But like yeah. you said, it's just there's so much like oh. the the werewolf designs are great. I mean, because ultimately, I do prefer more humanoid werewolves as well. Um, yeah, that's one thing. If, I sometimes if American Werewolf in London, if it was like actually a um a bipedal you know, Wolfman, I might like the film just a little bit more. I, I mean, I like the yeah. design of it,
1: but, uh, the face is awesome.
2: Yeah. The face the is great, but uh, but ultimately you can't like those, the werewolves in the howling are just so scary to me. And, um, and yeah, like D Wallace is a great, like leading lady in it. Uh, Joe Dante's, you know, on fire with the direction. So yeah, everything about that, um, top notch for me. Yeah.
1: Good pick. Good pick. Um, I, I, I gotta say this was really tough and, uh, you know, how you said the controversy of uh, the two werewolf movies. I ult- I I ultimately, I won't even say I chickened out what I felt like I was chickening out by picking them both. But I couldn't help it because all these great, I mean, this was tough, man. I mean, even if we would have done a top ten, it would have been tough. Top five would have been really tough. But top three, damn, breaking balls. But, uh, yeah, I just, I you know, where I'm at right now, currently, you know, taking nostalgia into effect and also... You know, I've, I've, you know, with the exception, obviously, of ghost story. Like I said, I, I've, wa- I've watched American War with London and The Howling multiple times within the last five years. And um, mm-hmm. damn, those, those, movies there's just something cool, you know, to yeah. rediscover every, every time you watch them. And, and, and yeah, I'm definitely with you, man. I think even now, as much as The Howling has come up in stature, I still kind of feel like yeah, it needs to be seen. Because I, mm-hmm. I, I believe it's it's right up there for different reasons, because they're different movies, but it's right up there with American War from London.
2: It's a crazy thing, right? It's like where it's 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 uh, Lost Boys and Near Dark, right? Where right. sometimes yeah. sometimes there's just a film that everything about it should it should be a bigger classic than it is. And it just had the misfortune of coming out at the same yeah. time as something else that slightly overshadowed it. Um, yeah. I mean, well, that's a kind of like near dark is so clearly better than Lost Boys. But, oh,
1: I I agree a thousand percent. But <laughs> and I know we're in the minority, but still, yeah. I love. Near I mean, dark. the Howling
2: American Werewolf is a little tougher of a debate, but still, yeah, there it's it's so cool that we got like two such two amazing werewolf films that year, um, and that, yeah. that that you can have that debate about.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you know, speaking speaking of near dark, I I literally remember like. I, I i'm not i don't want to make it sound like i think a lot of people think i'm bullshitting when i do this podcast i'm saying oh i had this great memory of this or, or this thing or this thing happened when i was four or five six seven ten years old but i but my memory is actually very piss poor believe it or not like the important shit in my life that i should have remembered i don't remember anything <laughs> dude and uh there's just certain things and i remember walking into that theater uh, we were running a few minutes late for near dark and um we walked in, we were walking down the aisle to get seats of this the opening, kind of like opening credit scene where it was uh, Adrian Pasdar kind of like spread all in the back of the pickup truck and the sunset and that, that tangerine dream score. And like, literally it was like, even the first time, not even knowing anything, well, knowing, you know, what the, whatever the trailer tells you, but not have seen the movie. I remember like, it was almost like goosebumps, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Th- that's what I really love about doing this podcast. I hope, you know, us. Not only just talking about these movies and some of them, yeah, we've just seen in the last two or three years, but I think talking about these memories of these movies, I really hope the listeners are getting that out of it too, you know, just bringing up all those great recollections of these great yeah. movies
2: well i'd like to i'd love to keep it going we should we should do yeah. some more uh 80s years because uh yeah. like i said it's it is a great year decade for horror it's a great decade for action uh, we yeah. we could dip our toes into that as well it might be fun to look at all the action films of a year um so yeah, yeah.
1: I, I know 80 coming up eighty four well 84 is a pretty good year i believe for i remember for horror but i think action is crazy in 84 so we might mm-hmm. have to do a couple things there so trev i, I know this has been a long recording it's going to end up being a long show for the people to listen to but um uh, yeah, like I, I think every, every, I mean, it feels like we do it every few months. We do one of these type of comprehensive episodes examining something, but it's really in reality, it's probably every few years we do it. But, mm-hmm. uh, I want to thank you for going along with it. And, uh, of course, you know, hope the listeners get out of it what we got out of it, revisiting this, going down old memory lane. And, uh, if, if you want to hear the, the daily, and I mean, maybe not even daily, maybe hourly drama of what the hell is going on with the release schedule of the New Mutants, <laughs> you're, you're going to need to check out what podcast, Trev? That will be a
2: Days of Future podcast, uh, yeah. examining the X-Men. So that is, yeah, that's yeah, me and my buddy Joe talking about the X-Men. Um, I'll, I'll flat out admit that right now we're kind of being a little more regular with episodes uh, because both Joe and his uh, lovely wife uh, work at a hospital and obviously the things the way they are, they've been very, very busy. Um, but we'll get back on track eventually. And, uh, you know, in three years when new mutants comes out, we'll be one of the first podcasts to, to cover it. So
1: that's right. When, when the the last gasp of coronavirus escapes somebody's chest, new mutants (laughs) will come out. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, thanks again, Trev, uh, everybody. Thank you for listening to us, sticking with us. Um, you know, I've been uh, able to pump a couple more of these episodes out per month, uh, going from one to usually two or three last couple months. I don't know if I'll be able to sustain that, but I hope so, because I'm having a lot of fun. This This show is, uh, you know, you make a show like this, even during normal times, you want this show something like this to be a fun escape for people. But for me, just doing this show is a fun escape, so I hope it's doing the same thing for the listeners, too. yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah definitely thanks for thanks for inviting me back on like you said i, I love uh this is a, one of my favorite shows to appear on because it is a chance to go back and yeah. think about these films i haven't thought about in a while or just to revisit them talk about them and uh it's always a blast so
1: yeah and you know our our download numbers are as steady as ever so even during these times people are still checking out the the show the old episodes the new episodes so everybody thank you for that and uh i guess till i guess you know soon again till next time I don't want to say fans, I'll say fiends, all you horror fiends, all you grave robbers, all you slashers, all you maniacs. We'll see you soon in the grave. Damn, I can't even do the, the <laughs> outro to the show right. Damn. <laughs> we'll see you guys again soon in the spooky, ooky, creepy, eerie, whatever movie graveyard.